Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, super agile, story, story from the space man. Come well lit. <laughs> Wait, what? I just got over COVID. Oh, for real? Yeah. How yeah. was that? It sucked, man. Yeah? That was horrible. Have you ever gotten COVID yet? I have not gotten COVID. Dude. Knock on I don't, wood. I don't, I don't recommend it, man. I know. I don't recommend it. You don't recommend me going out and trying to catch it? I figured everybody has it now in Taiwan. You know, it's like <laughs> 90,000 uh, cases per day. You know, so sooner or later, somebody's going to get it. Unless, I don't know. I've heard like only three or four people who haven't gotten it yet. Seriously. I mean, I think those numbers are way understated. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Number one. Oh, yeah. For sure. And sure. no one is reporting it. Look, I went to report it just to see to confirm. There's yeah. no reason to report it because then they you you put yourself in jail because they track you. Then they're like, exactly. you got to stay at your home for seven days. Like, why would I want to do that? Then why did I report it? Hundred percent. So I told the government, I went, you know, whatever. And oh, there's some medicine you can get. You know, if you mm. if you test positive, then you can go get some medicine and stuff okay. like that. But uh, it wasn't worth it. <laughs> it wasn't worth it. Don't if you get it, man. Don't don't just, report it. Yeah, just take care of yourself. You should. Yeah, there's a, you can't even get the medicines in Taiwan right now. So what did you have? Did you have three shots, two shots, and a booster? None, bro. Zero. I'm living on the edge. You're zero COVID. Yeah, <laughs> all natural, baby. <laughs> My wife is uh, double vaxxed, though, because it's required to immigrate to, uh, to the United States. You have to get vaccinated. But I, uh, I just took it. I just went, you know what? I'm going to go in there. I'm pretty healthy. And uh, yeah. You believe in yourself. <laughs> I guess. Is that what it is? <laughs> Maybe I just don't believe in the pharmacy and the, you know, for-profit companies. So I have a distrust with that. Wow. So, yeah. so what know, did your... That's funny because I was in the military, right? So exactly. <laughs> I think most people in the military, they come back and they're like, I don't trust the government at all. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you, ha that's a really interesting story. That's interesting. Especially in Taiwan. Because, you in know, Taiwan, it, yeah. it's pretty well known for having a pretty high vaccination rate. High vaccination relatively. rate. Relatively speaking. And that was kind of their strategy, right? Like try to get everyone vaccinated as much as possible and then just kind of let oh, the floodgates open. open. Yeah, basically, I think. So it really happened like that. Like you were fine until the floodgates open and then it got Yo, you. Look, my wife gave it to me. She's double vaxxed. Okay, so she's the one who gave it to me. Her whole, oh. All her class, she goes to like a little, little school thing and everybody there got COVID. And then she started feeling symptoms. So she went to get one of those rapid tests. Yeah. She did it twice and it was both negative. Right. And then on like, uh, this is like a Thursday or Friday. Yeah. She tried Thursday, negative, Saturday, negative. And she tried it again on Monday and that's when she had positive. And then, uh, then Tuesday I started feeling like a little bit scratched, but I was like, you know, I feel fine. Right. Wednesday hit me hard, you know, cold shivers, uh, fever, Headaches, body aches. It was like, oh man. I was, the second day, I was like, maybe I should have gotten vaccinated. This might, <laughs> this might have been a bad, bad, bad choice. Uh, so second, third days was bad. And then Friday, I think. The third day or fourth day when I was like, after I showed symptoms, mm. that's when I started feeling better. Really? And yeah. what kind of medication or treatment did you Nothing, man. Just I, rest? You know, I should have done better. I should have prepared now. Now I should have gotten my vitamins and stuff like that. I think my, my wife's wow. friend, her classmate, knows a Chinese doctor. So we were able to get like just Chinese medicine or something. And so mm. it's like, you're supposed to heat it up and drink it and stuff like that. I don't know. It was horrible. <laughs> I don't know if it did anything, but 
And yeah, so Thursday I wanted to get a PCR test to confirm because here's here's my thing though, right? In the United States, like you have to get vaccinated or something, but or you have to prove that you've had COVID before. Mm. And if you have COVID, then they say, okay, that's natural immunity. So like, well, the only way I can prove that I have COVID is if I take the PCR test. So mm. I went over to get one of those PCR tests in Taiwan, and so I have proof now that I got COVID and recovered. Okay. So they said I think if you fly in this going to the states, uh, ninety days within, mm. if you got COVID, you don't have to get tested. Okay. Supposedly. I don't know. So you got to get out of here before 90 days. <laughs> <laughs> or I got to get COVID again. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. It's not that hard here. You just take off your mask and just go to like Taipei main station. You're all good. I figured, like I said, everybody has it, right? It's yeah. underreported. Like I said, you know, totally. it's not worth, it's not worth reporting, you know, because like, then they call you every day and they didn't call me every day, but they call me the next day and like, Hey, you know, you got COVID. Like, yeah, I know that, you know, right. I'm, I'm the one who told you that <laughs> like, yeah, you can't leave your house for seven days. I'm like, well, that kind of sucks. You know, <laughs> You know, like, and then, then they also asked my wife and she said, oh, yeah, oh, did you get COVID as well? And she's like, yeah, I got COVID. And she's like, oh, you can't leave either. But it's like, yeah, actually I'm already better now. She's like, I got COVID like four days ago and I'm already better. I was like, okay, yeah, well, then maybe you don't have to, you know, quarantine. Like, yeah. So she's like, and she never got tested. Mm-hmm. Right? So they didn't quarantine her. But for me, they're like tracking my phone and everything. Right. I have some friends, you know, who are working here in Taiwan mm-hmm. and, you know, none of them are reporting it because if they do, then the whole company has to close exactly. down. Exactly. No. So it's like, no Oh way. yeah. They ask me, do you go, do you have a job? Do you go to, where's your office located? Right. Like you're basically like a snitch. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah, her, her, I think Grace's whole class, they, they didn't report it. It's like 30 mm. people who didn't report it. Right. Oh, that's so funny. it's like, so and that's, that's small sample size, you know, that nobody else is reporting it. So and I don't blame them. Exactly. Hmm. So for your listeners for your listeners out there. Exactly. For the audience. This is James. Oh yeah. Hey, hello, James. Hello. How are you, sir? James Good. is a Taiwanese American mm. superstar. Superstar. <laughs> I don't know about that, man. <laughs> and we actually met about six months ago it's been about six months we just talked about that off the air it's uh time flies crazy we're talking and we noticed very quickly in our discussion that we had both been in beijing before coming to taiwan we were there at the same time at the same school exactly at Tsinghua. yeah that was a big coincidence. Well, say, so, but you like you went to like the nice area, like the brand new. What was it? That was already sponsored by BlackRock, <laughs> yeah, Blackstone, Blackstone, right? Yep. Yeah. Shout out to Schwartzman, the Steve Schwartzman. Yeah, yeah. You were like the there, Schwartzman scholars. You were right there, and like you know, because I've been to those dorms, right? And it's like you get your own like cafeteria, and you got like um, I think everybody had their own like I don't remember like I just remember being in a really nice dormitory because <laughs> I have a friend who went to like the first year. We I mean, we have a mutual friend, right? Yep. And I went to a thing called IUP. And I don't know if you guys know, it's like, a, like back in the 1960s, like very intense Chinese program. So I was trying to get you know, level up my Chinese. Mm. So this is like really known in Tsinghua, like IUP, is, you know, like Princeton, Harvard, Yale, they send their students over there to like learn Chinese, right? Although the program is really well known, the building is still from the 1960s. Like right. they don't have air conditioning, they don't have heating. Mm-hmm. Like when they're in, in Beijing, they have like pollution. It's pretty bad where you have to wear the mask. Right. Basically, they don't have a way to filter that pollution so people would take class and still wear the mask during the class so, oh not for yeah. covid that was before COVID. Oh, yeah that's right <laughs> maybe, maybe beijing was preparing for this way before <laughs> or prepping exactly so. so when did you go to beijing um 2016 was my first time with the beijing so i was with my previous job like I, you said before i'm taiwanese american my parents immigrated from taiwan to uh, america i was born in chicago so i think a lot of people in my generation you know grew up in america you just don't speak another language my parents would speak Taiwanese uh, at home, so I could understand a little bit of that. But 
they just speak, spoke English with myself and my brother. Mm. And when I asked them why, it's just because they just immigrated to America and they wanted to practice their English. Mm. And I also think during that time in the 80s, I think parents thought that by speaking another language, it would hinder us from learning school. Right. And also they would speak English. And so they hope hopes that we could still catch up with people. You can know, assimilate as quickly as possible. Right. Yeah. But but now we, we know that, you know, you try to speak a second language as you can at home and speak, you know. As early as possible. Early as possible. Bilingualism as exactly. is, is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Kids are so adaptable. So it's huge. Right. Your brain is so malleable. Yeah. So you grew up basically by the time you had graduated college. How would you rate your Chinese level at that time? Oh, zero. Zero. That bad. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, because, you know, like, you know, the, it's Taiwanese parents. They would on, on, on Sundays, they would send us to Chinese school. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, just like volunteers of the Taiwanese groups try to send them to Chinese school. But in the 80s, they, they didn't have like the, that romanization that we know now, like, like pinyin. pinyin yeah. yeah, they had the, the bopo mofo. Yeah. So I'll be like trying to learn Chinese, but I'm not reading the Chinese characters at all. I'm reading the little thing, bopo mofo thingies on the side, and I'm butchering it. I'm just butchering it. I'm like, I can, I can safely say I was a Chinese school dropout. <laughs> okay. Here's the crazy thing. My brother actually graduated from Chinese school, but his Chinese is worse than mine. <laughs> Yeah, really? So it just shows that like Chinese school, just one class a week is just not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. You and Juying is so uh, inefficient because you're like learning another character to to read other characters, and yeah. it's like yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. You're you're learning like a you're trying to learn Chinese, which is like your your second language, right? But you're trying to read the characters, which is kind of like a third language, you it know. Is. And then you'll do, you have bopom mofo doing fu hao. It's just like that's like a fourth that's added on to there. Right. It's like why and probably impractical. So. Yeah. So anyway, so my Chinese was probably zero. I took some classes at um, at the military academy. So I went to West mm. Point. You know, but that was horrible. But it was bad. My Chinese teacher would pick on me a little bit. And it was like, I think I, I think that's the second time I dropped out of Chinese school. <laughs> the, the third year, fourth year. The military academy. Yeah. Drop yeah, out I, of Chinese. I don't know if you know this, but the military academy, as reputable as it is, they're not known for their language program. At least the Chinese at the time wasn't that good. That's interesting, right? Because the military has a huge need for language uh, proficient people, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they have the Monterey, you know, the right. defense languages. In California. Very, very good, right? Yeah, it's the best. But the military, you know, you're just, you're still getting like one or two classes a week and it's still not enough. Right. You know, on top of everything else in, in, in West, West Point, you got a full set of class and then you got military training, parades, Saturday morning is inspections, you know, to make sure that your room's clean. It's, it's just way too much time. You're waking up at 530 to go to formation at six in the morning. You have class all the way until like 5 p.m. and then you have drill. And then so you, so you don't get started. And then you have formations. I, at the time, like Thursdays, you have to do formations for dinner. So by the time you're like, ready to do homework. It's already eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. And you got, they call it taps. Like at 10 o'clock, you're supposed to turn off your lights and go to bed, but most people stay up. Past mm. that. So if people don't know, uh, West Point is the most prestigious military academy in the United States. Is that correct? I mean, like, we'd like to think so. <laughs> we'd like <laughs> West to Point so. people think so. Yeah, West Point <laughs> definitely think so. We'd like to think so. Actually, we were on like, um, I think in 2006, Forbes put us as like the best bang for your buck uh, graduate school. Undergraduate oh, school? Not even, I mean, like, Over, not only military, civilian as well. Well, oh, okay. because here's the deal like, what you don't know about the West Point is they actually pay you to go to school. 
Like Right. It's yeah. like a full ride. Yeah, yeah it's a full ride, but yeah. everybody gets the same, right? So it's not like you get a scholarship, but basically you, you go to class and they pay like when I was going every month, like three hundred, four hundred dollars a month. Okay, yeah, you get a stipend. A little stipend, right? It was so I didn't go know to this top go, military academy. Well, because what you do is you pay for it with your life. After you graduate, you owe like <laughs> you eight, owe eight years. Right. That's a fine print. I, you know, when I signed up, I thought I was just five years active. I didn't realize there's a small print that says, Oh, there's gotta do three additional years somewhere else and so i imagine oh, my surprise after five years i'm like oh wait i gotta do three more years or something do you think most west point cadets uh fail for this or yeah i don't think well yeah, most people are like 17 years old and 18 yeah. years old like what do you know when you're 17 or 18 right, right. so to do, do all that speaking of that so a 17 year old 18 year old james growing up in in chicago and then so what gave you this motivation or what was the impetus to go to west point which is out in new york yeah um why did you decide to do that yeah, that's a good question. I sometimes ask myself that all the time, you know, because, <laughs> I, you know, I think... Why did I do that? Yeah, looking back on it, you know, when you're 17 years old, I was I did okay academically, but I always felt like I had to prove myself. You know, like I was in gymnastics and, you know, sports, did, the captain of the gymnastics team, did okay. orchestra. Like, that sounds nice now, but like most Taiwanese <laughs> people, they, their kids, they put them in violin or piano back exactly then. And so right. it's always some sort And of then history. all academics after that. All academics, exactly. So... I guess I just always felt like the need to prove myself. And mm. at that time, I think most people were looking to go to the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And right. I wanted to go someplace like prestigious. And so mm. my best friend applied to West Point. And I'm like, well, you know, why not? I've read West Point in the, in the history books. And I know mm. it's history with Ulysses Grant and all the generals. about it's four years of college. And then I, I at the time, I thought five years I could do it. So it's <laughs> nine years of my life. I can handle nine years of life and just keeping my doors open because I really didn't know what I want to do with my life. So basically, that's essentially what... Why I applied to West Point. And then also, like, even though I was okay academically, like, I don't ever feel like I could have gotten into an Ivy League school. My grades mm. weren't that good. Mm. But West Point doesn't just test on the academics. They also test on the physical. Mm-hmm. And they, they tested on, like, multiple different things. Like, you have to get a senator's recommendation or a congressman's recommendations. And, you know, I could I didn't know any congressmen. I just, mm. But they get, like, five slots every year to the various military academies. So I felt like I could, like, academically I was good enough. I felt like physically I could definitely do it. And the other stuff is, like, I always said, like, it's, well, applying to West Point is like applying to three different colleges. You have to write the essays, but also you got to interview for the senator. You can write an essay to the senator and tell mm. him why he wants to nominate you. And I felt like I could do all that. So, mm. And I did. So I did West Point and then my safety school at the University of Illinois. Did you get into the safety school? I did. Oh, you <laughs> I did. did? I did. So I did. even though you got into the safety school, was it a pretty easy decision for you to say, I'm going to West Point? Or what, did you have to kind of wrestle with that for a bit? Um, For me, I felt like it was a, a pretty good... Because I, because I wanted to go someplace special and I wanted to prove myself. So it was pretty, I was pretty sure I wanted to go to West Point. And I'm probably, you know, throughout my life being ignorant has probably been a blessing for me because like I didn't realize like there was a boot camp for six <laughs> weeks. I didn't realize that you didn't have like a life. <laughs> like you know, West Point has a saying for Los Cadets, it's a good place to be from, but not a good place to be at. Oh, if, that's interesting. So afterwards you can say I went to West Point, but yeah. while you're there. We were there because if you look at West Point, it was originally built to be a fortress, right? It's, so it's a defense. serious fortress. Right. And it's literally- On the mountain. On a mountain at West Point. Yeah. Literal gray walls. And overlooking the Hudson River. Beautiful Hudson River. It's beautiful. But, it, but like the rooms are like small little jail cells. Really? Yeah. Jail cells. Because you like it's gray walls and it wasn't meant for like a college dorm. So yeah. So I, for me, it was pretty easy for me to say yes, but my parents didn't want me to go. You know? Okay. So you, know, you don't come from a military family. Not at all. Uh, but you know, but you know, in Taiwan, because my parents grew up in Taiwan, mm. and you're required, you're conscripted to do a year or two years at the time. And my parents told me, like, hey, we left Taiwan 
so that you wouldn't have to go in the military. It's so funny, right? Yeah, because right. the specter of war always has been, you know, like a dark cloud over Taiwan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. And yeah, I, I guess in Taiwan, not like not like in America where we kind of lift up the military and honor them. Like in Taiwan, it's kind of like if you go in the military in Taiwan, you're kind of like, man, you couldn't get into a good college. Right. You couldn't have done better for yourself, right? Right. So, but I'll say this though, when I graduated West Point, my parents were so proud of me, you know what I mean? So wow. they definitely yeah. did. They had the shirt, the hat. My, I think my dad still wears the West Point shirt. <laughs> so. so what what was your best memory from your West Point days? I would say the friendships. Mm. Friendships for sure. Because you go through such a crucible, you know, going through like um, boot camp, I guess you call basic training. You just suffer there for like four years. Mm. Kind of like, because, and I would say this, like the people who drop out of West Point the most were the ones who actually had a life before going to West Point. You know, oh. like prior service people, people who were actually in the military. Because, like, I went right from high school, so I really didn't know what life was like away from my parents, right? Right. So you kind of, like, are ignorant in West Point saying this is just life. So they can mold you. They mold you. Yeah, they tear you down, and they mold you, and they form you into their perfect cadet specimen, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they tell you, and they tell you, the kind of a lie, though. They say, this is the military. Mm -hmm. So they'll say something like, you know, you got attention to detail. If you forget this attention to detail, you killed your platoon, you know? So I was oh, like, you shit. forgot the mustard. You know, like certain things at West Point, you have to like place like the condiments in a certain order. You have to cut the pie in a, a perfect 12 or there's like, I think 10 people at a table, but you have to, it's hard to cut it in tens or something like that. So you have oh, to have wow. like a little pie piece. Like when you eat, eat your plate's supposed to be one thumbnail away. And then on the West Point, they had a crest of West Point. So it would always have to be at the 12 o'clock position. Wow. So yeah. And then when you eat, you're supposed to eat, you put the spoon in your mouth. And then before you can chew, you got to put the spoon down and then you can chew three times and then swallow. So, but you only have a limited time to eat and you have, uh, at, you know, basic training, you got all like the upperclassmen hazing you, but they couldn't literally Harassing like, you. Harass, yeah, they can't literally like touch you, but they can definitely waste your time. So you're <laughs> like, so people are trying to eat like these big spoon full bites. And then the classmen, you know, when the upperclassmen talks to you, you're supposed to be able to talk to them right away. So you would see people go eat like this huge bite and you're wondering if they're going to be able to finish it. One two and then just swallow this huge gulp and there are three you know and then no so they can way. speak to somebody yeah so there's all these rituals in west point definitely tradition and rituals um they used to have a thing called ping so when i went there it's basically you have to walk 120 steps per minute okay so if you think about it, that's two steps per second yeah and so all of the freshmen you know they had to call called pinging where they had to walk wait what, what is this p-i-n-g -P pinging pinging okay. yeah pinging okay so when i went there they said that you couldn't do that anymore but that you know that they're still getting over it so it's tradition though some cadets when we were still going through had to do it we don't i'm pretty sure they can't do that anymore but basically when you're outside your room you have to walk 120 steps per second or 120 steps per minute two steps per second and you have to look forward as fast as you can to get to your destination and then <laughs> You're supposed to memorize this entire book. Like there's a whole cadet book you're supposed to memorize. And so an upperclassman can stop you at any time and ask you this is called cadet knowledge, plebe knowledge. So when you're a freshman, oh, you're called a plebeian. Okay. Right, plebe. Yep. And so you have to be able to spout all these things like, you know, sir, how many, you know, like what's for dinner? Sir, for dinner there is blah, blah, blah. You know, to memorize the meals. The manual and the, okay. Yeah. Well, you also had to read the New York Times at the time. So they would have a New York Times paper and you have to memorize like an article from the New York Times and then also a sports page. So like, what's in the New York Times today? And they're like, sir, today in the New York Times, blah, blah, blah. You know, ma'am, blah, blah, blah. So, and as a freshman, that first year, you're, you only have four responses. So you only say, yes, sir, no, sir, no excuse, sir, sir, I do not understand. No other that's responses. It. That's it for, for four years, unless they ask you a more specific question, right? So like, let's say something like something Whoa. goes wrong. Like, who did this? Why is this like, you know, before you had to deliver laundry? You know, why didn't you just deliver this laundry right away? Mm. And your only response is, no excuse, sir. 
or sorry, no, you can't make an excuse. You can't talk about, <laughs> well, because of this and this and this and this happened. No, they just said, no, I just want to hear no excuse, sir. Right. And so I think that what did, did a couple of things is that you can't blame anybody for anything. You just accept the, the, the full the, responsibility, full responsibility, no excuse. And you work right immediately to find a solution. Huh. So I, at the time, of course, you know, as a freshman, you're like, no, it's not my fault. This person did this. And, you know, this is why it happened. But you quickly learn that most upperclassmen don't want to hear any excuses. And they just want to hear you say, no excuse, sir, or sir, I do not understand. And then, you know, mm. move on, find a solution. So when you became an upperclassman, did you do you the know, same thing and harass the younger generation? There's like, uh, I guess there's a stereotype that the hardest upperclassmen were the ones who got hazed the most when they were younger, mm. when they were freshmen, right? And I, I don't know, I was, I was never a military background. Like even when I was younger, watching cartoons, I never watched G.I. Joe, really. I watched like Spider-Man and Friends and like Voltron <laughs> and stuff a lot. So I wasn't a military guy. And I kind of wish I did. Knowing, looking back on my life now, you know, I wish I did the Boy Scouts. I wish I did more camping stuff because like I was going to West Point blind, like how to shine shoes and stuff like that. Pass it and on, I think I was pretty chill. Because mm. I try to think about the more important things that you need to do in life. Mm. You know, the stupid things like, what's the knowledge or how many days until I graduate and stuff like that. Those are things that um, new cadets that you call them new cadets are mm-hmm. supposed to know. But uh, I would try to focus on like, okay, if I was in the real life, real world, how would I handle these situations? So I guess I was pretty chill, but I don't know. So you said this all comes from your best memory is actually your friends, the people you met there. Oh yeah. No, I mean, my roommate now, like I still keep in contact with them. All mm. my roommates, um, at West Point. My roommate now is the CEO of some of the hospitals in Las Vegas and uh, and in Los Angeles, actually. Hmm. So so we still keep in contact. Like VA, like uh, military. No, he's, re- he's connected. A, no, oh. he, he was out. He got out as okay. well. And he's regular, regular um, private, uh, private yeah, hospitals. citizen. And yeah. OK. Yeah. Huh. So. And then what about this boot camp? What goes on in, in the West Point boot camp? Um, what are your memories from that? Yeah. So like when you graduate high school, you know, most people have their summers before they start like their academic year. But mm-hmm. West Point actually starts the basic training stuff um, for six weeks prior. So that's like two months before. So you're, you're like in June, I think. When you start basic June, July. And I think August then is when you start classes. So, you know, it's basically, I think, man, it's been a while. Six weeks, you basically, I think the first thing is, is basically just tearing it down. Like you could have been mm-hmm. the best athlete. You could have been the smartest person. But at uh, when you have basic training, everybody's the same. Mm. And that's the general idea of most military basic training stuff is that it doesn't matter what you did in the past. You're here in this situation now. Can you still do what's asked or told needed from you? Mm. So, and then, you know, when I was at West Point, I didn't run. You know, I was, I was a gymnast. So, you know, mm. gymnastics, the most you run is like a hundred meter sprint. Right, right, right? Right. But the <laughs> first run, yeah, I remember the first time they, they had formation. And then I think you had to run to the exercise field. And I think I almost dropped out. Like I couldn't like <laughs> even run to the exercise field, which is only like 800 meters away. It was not even... <laughs> wasn't even that far, and I was, like, breathing hard. I couldn't breathe at all. <laughs> right, right, I wasn't, right. A, I wasn't a runner back then, but West Point definitely makes you a runner. Like, after running and cadence After and four years, you're just a Superman. I don't know about Superman, but I definitely <laughs> can run now. Yeah. Okay, so after you graduated from West Point, do you immediately have to undergo some service and do yeah. some? Yeah, the requirement for West Point is you got to do five years of active duty service. First two years of West Point, it's actually kind of free. You can drop out of the first two years of West Point and then mm. kind of go to another college and transfer those credits over, right? Okay. But their first day on your junior year of college, your cow year of college, basically if you drop out, you have to go right enlist in the military. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so they calculate the 
the tuition at West Point to be about $250,000, I wow. think. I don't know where they come up with that number. It's been $250,000 like since I went there, and that right. was like over 20 years ago. <laughs> so I don't know what happened to inflation or whatever. That, <laughs> exactly. I guess, this is, they said tuition is $250,000, and that's how, you, how much you got to pay back if you drop out of West Point. Whoa. Uh, but so you, you, I told you, you get, you get paid a little bit of stipend per month, but when you get graduate, the reason why Forbes made West Point like the number one bang for your buck is because when you graduate from West Point, you're automatically a second lieutenant in the Army. Mm. Right, so one of the benefits because you know some people ask like why go to West Point versus ROTC or OCS? Those are basically the three ways to get commissioned okay. in the army. And the best way I can put it is what is ROTC? And you go to a, a regular college, you know, like University of Florida, but they have a, a, a program where on the on summers details you you're still doing the military stuff, and then you can graduate as a second lieutenant. Mm-hmm. So you graduate from West Point, you graduate from ROTC. Your second lieutenant, you're what they call a butter bar because the bar is just basically a piece of butter, like a yellow piece of butter. You don't know anything, oh, right? So that's why okay. I call you a butter bar. <laughs> the, the best thing about West Point, I guess, is that based on your class rank, mm. like you can choose your post. So you can basically, based on your class rank, you get the first one to decide if there's like, they'll tell you, first of all, your, your, your slot. So you can choose if you want to be infantry, engineer, field artillery, you know, one of the different branches in the army okay. based on the slots. And then based on your... Class rank in the branches. Each post will say what well, how many slots of officers they need. Mm. So they'll have like Fort Carson, they have Fort Benning, they have Hawaii. You know, those are all those places, and say, okay, we need these many cadets. And basically, you go in this auditorium, and they go number one slot person. You know, number one in, in this it's branch. Like a draft pick. Draft pick. You just stand up and you just announce to everybody where you want to go. You know, like oh, okay, really? and they'll just mark it off on the little projector. Okay, that's off for that one. That's all. And class ranking means basically grades. Grades and uh, physical grades and military. So it's a culmination of three different uh, aspects. It's weighted though. So of course, academics more, physical is more. I think the military was only like 15% or something. But so based on the culmination of that, so your class ranked okay. about that. So I was all prepared to go like, you know, I wasn't very high, but I was all prepared to go to Korea because Korea has got considered like, like there's a lot of people who don't want to go to Korea, I guess. But I was like, you know, I want to be in Asia. I don't mind that, right? Mm. I remember standing up and I was like, I think I was the last person to get a slot to Hawaii. I'm like, shoot. And I remember like, man, Hawaii slot's still open. I'm like, everybody wants to go to Hawaii, right? Yeah. And I'm like, so I'm standing there for like 10 seconds. Everybody's getting pissed at me. They're like, like just make choose. your choice. I'll make a choice. Like, I guess I'm going to Hawaii because I figured I'd get Hawaii. I could always trade it out or something. Right, like. right, right, right. But I amazingly got Hawaii and Hawaii was a great post. So I lived in Hawaii for three years, learned how to surf. Uh, it was awesome. Hawaii was the best. Oh, wow. You got the last slot to go to Hawaii. I'm out of my class. I know. And I wasn't that, I don't think I was that high, you know? Wow. So where were you based? So it's called Schofield Barracks. So it was on Oahu. Oahu. So you know how beautiful Hawaii is supposed to be, right? Right. Right by the ocean. But take it for the military to pick the middle of the island (laughs) where it's not like all red dirt there. Not any close to an ocean at all. Yeah, it's protected. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just in case. I guess. Yeah. So I was at Schofield Barracks for about three years. But uh, during that time, I was in Iraq for about a year and two months. And then. Oh, so while you were based in Hawaii, you actually yeah. you got called to duty. Yeah, you know, this is so when when I when I graduated from West Point, that was two thousand one. Mm. So that was before nine eleven. It's so, right around nine eleven. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I actually nine eleven. I actually visited. I was. I actually came to Taiwan. Tried it my third time to try to learn Chinese in Taiwan. <laughs> Didn't. Wasn't successful again. I'm, I just keep failing. I, I, you know, I'm just a maybe slow learner. Right. So I didn't learn Chinese then. And I came back from time, but I got to visit my grandmother and stuff like that. Mm. Got back to, to America. And when I, I think I was been in America for like two or three days. And then uh, 9-11 happened. And the week, the next week I was going to officer basic course. So it was basically engineer basic course at Fort Leonard, Missouri. 
which is near St. Louis, Missouri, mm-hmm. about an hour, uh, Springfield, Missouri, about an hour from Springfield, Missouri. Mm. So that's my basic course right there. And so that's when 9-11 happened. So for us, when I was doing basic course, yeah, six months in, in uh, Fort Leonard Ward. Wow. Or lost in the word, lost in the woods is what they call it because it's just oh, forest out in the woods. Yeah. So how is that, man? When you're in the military, especially at something as you know high level and prestigious as West Point, and then nine eleven happens. Yeah, I think at that time, I think everybody was ready to go. You know, because everybody's talking about terrorist organization, Al Qaeda. You know, I think we were all ready to go. I think mm. everybody was like in the mindset there was, what do we need to do to defend the country? Um, I mean, I've heard of so many people too who were out of the military because you know, like in the '90s, there was not much going on in the military. So there's a lot of people who had retired, but when 9/11 happened, everybody came back into the military. So we were, you know, officer basic course was normally supposed to be like an easy kind of because you're officers, so it's kind of supposed to be an easy training thing. But for some reason, our cadre at that time made it super hard, where it really sucked for our officer basic course class, and we even had a guy commit suicide. Uh, our, our OBC class. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. One of your cohort. Yeah, exactly. Whoa. Because they were making it so hard. They were making us like, there was some stupid, like, um, they would call, recall us. And so like for a certain amount of time, like at any time within the next hour, they were trying to make us like a quick reaction force, mm. you know, in the, like the 82nd in the military, like within 48 hours, you know, the military can deploy anybody out there to any war zone. Right. Right. So it's trying to simulate that in our officer basic course, like within 24 hours, we call you, everybody has to form up and do some sort of formation. Okay. And they made that officer basing course a living hell for all of us. It sucked. Psychologically, it's, yeah, it's but tough. They, but they, that, that course wasn't meant for that. Right. You know, it was supposed to be like a gentleman's course. You're supposed to go there and learn how to be an officer, an engineer. You know, mm. So I was in the engineer branch. So you're trying to learn how to do like recon, but you also learn how to do like like the bridge reconnaissance, you know, how to do like truckloads and mm. stuff like that. And they're trying to make it like it was supposed to be like ranger school or something like that. Some other special forces school or something like that. So mm. that's, kind of, that's kind of a elephant in the room, right? The, the suicide rate, whether it's in training or when you are actually deployed in the field or even maybe worse, or I don't know if it's better or worse, if we can qualify it, but after getting back PTSD and other kind of things. So. Yeah. I think the military is better at it now, but back then it kind of like, I think little was known about PTSD. There was just more like you kind of have to handle it. Mm. You know, there's, there's an objective, there's a mission. You got to get that mm. done. And then when you get it done, bam, you know, move on to the next thing. And so I think they're a little bit better about it now, but yeah, at that time, suicide rate, people just suffering after, you know, when I went to Iraq and came back, people are still, they had these like, you know, you go through these like psychological evaluations, but most people at that time was kind of considered not good. Mm. And so, you know, it's kind of like a paper whipping, pencil whipping. Right. You know, they said, oh, we have to do this, but knowing now, you should probably... No, you know, and you're 23 years old at the time, right? I'm 23 years old, so I'm like, I don't need no psychological evaluation. I can, right. I'm, I'm good. good. Hard I'm good. charger. Yeah. yeah, I just come back from Iraq. We did a great job. You know, at that time, everyone was like, you did a great job. You, did, you saved the Iraqis from whatever we were trying to save them. Weapons of mass directions, I don't know. Right, <laughs> right, right. And I guess then it's just, uh, yeah, it's probably mental health stuff is, wasn't known as well back then. Mm, you think now. they're getting better at that, dealing with it? I mean, you just, you have to, it's one yeah. of the, one of the biggest, uh, force decriplers, um, for the military is the mm. mental illness stuff. Mm. So, yeah. Cause these are still humans, not robots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, mm. so how old were you when you were deployed to Iraq? 23, 24 years old, 23, 24. And yeah. this is your first time stepping into the middle East. It is. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, because like, so originally we were ready to go to Afghanistan. Oh, uh, two, wow. Afghanistan was the first theater, right? Yep. So this is like 2000, 2003. Okay. 2003. And then 
Um, and we we're going to go six months and six months because, you know, in Hawaii, there's two divisions. So, but then they said, they called us up and said, okay, we want one force to go to Afghanistan. We want to go one force to go to Iraq. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so you just luck of the draw, you went to Iraq. We went to Iraq and instead of a six month deployment, it was a year deployment so for both, for both divisions. Oh, wow. One, one division did a year in Iraq, Afghanistan and the other one did a year in Iraq. Yeah. Iraq. Okay. Yeah. So what is what was that year like in Iraq? Um, the way I describe it is, uh, you know that movie Groundhog Day? Mm, you know, over and over and over again. Just every day again. is the same day, over and over again, punctuated by sheer excitement. Huh. So because there's no weekends. You know, this, I went in Iraq 2004. And so there was just, and I was up in northern Iraq uh, by Kirkuk. In the Kurdistan region. Kurdistan region. So the, the eastern side is the Kurdistan region, and the western side was the come with the Arab region. So more right. of the fighting was happening on the western side. Okay. Kirkuk was like the oil fields yep. and stuff like that. And then on the right-hand side was the Kyrgyzstan, Kurdish area, mm-hmm. which was a lot more safer for, at least for the military was. But right, there, they were more U.S. friendly, of yeah, course. Yeah, more U.S. friendly. So yeah, so I did six months as a platoon leader on the western side. And, uh, mm. uh, they call it Gaines Mills and also there was um, Fob McHenry. Mm. Fob McHenry, so, so I was on the western side. And then I did six months. I, I rotated out of my, my platoon leadership there and then, then I did like uh, project reconstruction. So working with the USAID and the Corps of Engineers to rebuild some stuff on the eastern, eastern side. Right. Some people don't know that a big uh, responsibility for the military is infrastructure. Yeah, right. Winning the hearts and minds, you know, you're trying to build infrastructure and show that the military is helping the civilian population. And that's what you're, you're trying to show that by doing good, people are going to want to do more good things for you. Right. So just not kinetic, but non-kinetic wars kind of what they're talking about mm. so yeah so i did that yeah i did that for like yeah year two months in iraq what do you take away from that experience i think more importantly is um time management leadership you know as an officer you're considered a leader but you really can't do things all by yourself it's not like because like i told you I said like you're an officer you just came out of college and you're supposed to like know everything and lead all these right hard charging soldiers yeah, and most of them is already. They, most of them have already been in the military five years, six years. Your platoon sergeant, who's the second in command, has actually been in the military ten years. Wow! Yeah. Right, and he's calling you the boss, even though you've just got out of college. You know, just this fresh, fresh ner- nerd from West Point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. West Point. Yeah. You, you don't learn anything. You, know, then you don't necessarily learn anything at West Point. This is up how to like shine your shoes and how to dress. You know, and how to get things and how to have four answers for everything. Your four answers and just take responsibility for the for any blame. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's time management and also like learning how to like really provide the resources for your men, you know, because like I was an engineer, right? So they learned how to do like blow things up. It's like mobility, counter mobility and survivability. That was the engineer mission. So mm-hmm. we would like look at IDs, you know, b- you know, bombs on the roadside bombs. We would do counter mobility, which is create obstacles. So if they, anybody tries to attack the FOB or the, the operator ba- operation base, you know, they wouldn't be able to attack it directly. And survivability, every night there'd be like motor attacks. Um, and so you try to build these like uh, survivability positions to protect the people from those, those things. But you can't, you know, you're, you're only charged with 27 men and you're mm. protecting like 500 men, like a task force. Wow. So you're basically teaching the men to teach the infantry how to build their own survivability positions. Okay, so you are directly in charge of 27. Yep. And then those 27. So I would also, as a, a first lieutenant then, advise the task force commander how to use the engineer assets. Mm. So basically just get, you know, giving my suggestions at a 23 year old, Hey, this is how you best build survivability positions. Hey, we have these limited bucket, bucket loaders and, you know, scrapers. This is what we should do for them. And the commander can decide then 
or the the operational guy can decide what to do with it, but you just give their suggestions on how to use the engineer assets. Wow. So, okay. Yeah, it's a lot of responsibility for a 23, 24 year old. But honestly, when I felt like at the time, it's just I felt like it was a job. Mm. I felt like this is 23, 24, but this is if I was in a normal job, this is what was required of me. Looking back now, you know, 15 years later, you're, you're like, like, what was I doing? What was I doing? It's like that's a lot of responsibility to put on a 23 or 24 year old, and you realize is that there's a lot of responsibility put on the military, especially the young men and women, right? To do what they need to do. So, but at 23, 24, I thought that was just a job and that's the best I could do. And I felt like I was doing the best of my ability to make sure mostly because not necessarily because I believed in the mission in Iraq was, you know, we, who knew why we were in Iraq. Right. I felt like I had to do it for the brothers and sisters, the comrade in arms to make sure that they got back safely. Right. And I felt like nobody else would do a better job than me. So I felt like that's mm. my responsibility to make sure these guys get home. Right. So just protecting your, your team, the team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, I think the biggest takeaway is that the leadership, one part of leadership is providing direction, but then also trusting your men to do their job mm. and giving them the resources so that they can do that. So trying to make sure they had the right equipment, make sure they had the right devices to get some of them to accomplish those missions. Mm -hmm. What is the craziest thing you saw during your time in Iraq? Craziest thing I saw. I mean, I just, I, I don't like to bring this up, but like, you know, when there's mortar attacks every night, right? So, so mortar so, attacks means yeah, like these little artillery things. Basically, when you know every night, you know, basically what the, the whoever it was against the enemy, they would go on these truck beds and they would shoot these little you know, artillery things. Mm. And you know these little artillery things, there's be a pop, like a poof, and then okay. every one or two seconds before it whistles, and then explode. Right. So when you ever heard that pop, you know you have everybody would yell incoming, and they just drop to the ground, and then you just you're just waiting until the missile come. And then you hear the boom, right? So wow. every time you hear a pop, you just automatically, you know, your heart starts beating. It's like Pavlov's conditioning, right? You hear the yeah. pop and you're like, okay, income in, go down and go down. And so, um, you know, after a year of that, I remember coming back to Hawaii and it was like 4th of July. So it was like Independence Day. You know, there's like all these firecrackers and stuff like that. And I just remember just one night and I was trying to sleep and just hear these pops and your heart just races for a little bit. And you realize, oh, wait, you know, I'm at oh, home now. This yeah. is... Yeah. Wow. So anyway, so during that time, though, during these IEDs, people would get hit. Not often. It was very low, low chance. But when people did, you know, I saw people lose legs. Uh, I saw some people, you know, have lost their life. Where we were, you know, one of the enemies was like a 17-year-old grenadier, like a small guy, 70-year-old Iraqi kid attacking the unit, you know, the, our, our platoon. Mm. And, you know, everybody's rushing and bum-rushing and killing him. And so, but he's like halfway alive. And basically, he's going to die. But he's only 17 years old. Wow. So you see kind of that stuff, you know, 17 year olds, 20 year olds just doing those crazy things at that, at that time. Right. They're coming to attack you and you guys have to protect yourselves. And everybody else is like, you know, I was, I was 23 years old, but you know, I was in charge of 17 year old kids right. as well. And up to 35 years old, you know, who's right. one of the oldest in the platoon. Right. So, whoa. Right. So it's, you know, he's, I mean, and I was in the Northern part, so it's not like a lot of dangers. Like, right. Not like in Baghdad, in Baghdad where the green zone was. Yes. So you like, you see some of that stuff and you're just like, you realize like, it really makes you really step up and say, like, I got to get the job. It's not just a job, but it's just a way to make sure that if I fail or I don't do this right, then people lose their lives. Wow. So a lot of responsibility. I think I could get really stressed out at that time. Okay. We really learn how to handle the stress management, time management, mm, leadership. And leadership. And I think that's why a lot of people, you know, like a lot of businesses like to hire people from the military. Ex-military, right. Yeah, because like at yeah, 23, 24 years old, you're already managing you're always a manager. 
Yeah. You don't ever get that kind of management when you're. And it's really life or death management too. Yeah, you do. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Yeah, y'all. In any business or any any job, there's always the good stuff and there's the bad stuff. And I'll never take away. You know, I love the military time, but also you know, there are things about the military that sometimes it's like, why am I in this? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, like I said, Iraq. Why are we there? Right. Why were we there? What were we doing? You know, trying right. to find these weapons of mass destruction that we never found. Right. So yeah. So while you're there, I mean, I guess it's better sometimes to just push down those thoughts, right? Because if you think about them, if you doubt the mission, if you think about it too much, then it's not really healthy, right? Yeah, I think, well, when you're 23 years old, I guess I was a little more naive. And you're like, I'm going to trust our congressmen and our government that they know what they're doing, right? I know I can only, we talk about strategic, operational, tactical. So tactical is on the ground. Operational is kind of like the middle, kind of like how to get things done within theater. Strategic is like the big picture, vision, America's goals. Right. And so, you know, when you're a, a second lieutenant, first lieutenant, you're like, well, you know, that's above my pay grade. Yep. Right. I hope Let the strategic those other missions. people take because care of that. Because tactically, we felt like we're doing great. We're giving the dolls, we're shaking handshake, we're handshaking kids, we're giving food to the kids, giving shoes. You know, everybody loves us in, in there. But, you know, strategically, what are we accomplishing those goals? Probably not. Right. You guys are on the front line and you have no idea what the people in the suits in, in Washington are planning or talking about. And this is probably why you, after a military military stand, you just don't trust the government anymore. Right, you know, right. They don't know what they're doing. Necessarily. Right, 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 right. So, yeah. Wow. So after one year, how do you get news that it's winding down? I mean, you, you kind of know. Originally, we were supposed to only be there for eight months, 10 months, but mm. then we got extended for three or four months there okay. for a year. So you kind of know that. Everybody kind of knows how long they're supposed to be in, in the, the operational area. Okay. So. And so what happened after Iraq? Iraq, and then I went to... Uh, Went back uh, to Hawaii, uh, and then at that time they were transitioning to the, these new equipment called the Strikers. Okay. And they what, volunteered to... What kind of equipment is this? So, like, in, 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 when I went first in Hawaii, they called it, like, a light unit, which is basically a lot of rucking, a lot of marching. Mm. You're carrying all your stuff. You're in these Hummers or Humvees. And I, I don't know if you remember Donald Rumsfeld. He was the Secretary, Secretary of Defense then. Donald Rumsfeld. Donald yep. Rumsfeld, yeah. So, you know, but they were asking him, like, why don't you have enough uh, equipment? And... The Rumsfeld said, you don't go with the equipment you want. You go with the equipment that you have, right? Right. And I was angry because, like, you know, we, we were, need better equipment. Yeah, but we were had these light-skinned Humvees that were just, you know, which basically means there's no armor on right. these Humvees. We were basically like Mad Max, you know, that movie. Yeah. We were just hunting on these little places and trying to upbuild our Humvees. And so <laughs> no way. they transitioned that said, you know, that's not the new warfighting method. And so they transitioned the equipment from Humvees to Strikers. So they did more of that stuff in Hawaii. Uh, I volunteered to go to uh, the Philippines with the special operations group because I always was interested in special operations. So mm. I was attached to like the Green Berets and the Navy SEALs and the Philippines and just basically as their engineer, mm. you know, trying to work with them, doing the same thing I was doing in Iraq, was trying to build, do construction, trying to win the hearts and mind of the Philippines. So this is in the Philippines. I'm assuming this is in the South. In the South, that's right. Right. Olo, Tawi, Tawi, yeah, in the South. That, at that time, it was maybe Abu Sayyaf and yep. yeah, that's right. these. You got it. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, at the time. I think there was Christian missionaries that got beheaded oh, the year before or something right. like that in Holo. So that was the that was the big thing that was going on at that time. So how did that feel that being down in the south of the Philippines, and how does that compare to Iraq? It's totally different. You know, you got yeah. conventional warfare. You know, with the conventional military. And then you're attached to the Green Berets and Navy SEAL guys, and they got a whole different set of rules, different mindset. Um, but in many ways, you know, because they're smaller and they have less, they have more resources. They don't have as many resources because they're smaller groups. They don't have as much equipment, but they have better equipment and they're more elite. Right. Yeah, right. But so, so, but so they're like, you think like, I don't know, in the movies they portray like these green berets as like really cool, kind of like 
laid back, but really they're not. They're like very, very type very A, a personality. Very day personality. A, yeah. yeah, I mean they got to be right because yeah. it's like very. You got to kill or be, be killed. You know, but when you're not in that theater, right, you can be really relaxed because it's kind of like I've been through all that. But when you're in the theater, you're like you have to be ready. Yeah, and it's weird though because like you know the Navy SEALs are they're made for like a certain thing, right? They're like direct action. But they had them in the Navy SEALs in, in the Philippines to like do the Green Beret stuff, which is basically by, with, and through, kind of working the the Philippine military. And the Navy SEALs at that time weren't trained to do that. So a lot of times the Navy SEALs were there. They're like, we don't know what we're doing here. We're just kind of like attached to them. Huh. There's no direct action. So a lot of them were just like playing video games. And they're, I actually went like wakeboarding with one of the Navy SEAL guys. You know, they just a Zodiac, which is like a little rubber boat. And they would just wakeboard and... <laughs> in the middle of Tawi Tawi is that's basically it. No way. Yeah. These like elite fighting machines and they're just, and they're just playing video games and basically yeah they work <laughs> out and play video games because they're like we don't know how to train these guys too. Well, the Green Berets are doing that, but the Navy SEAL guys were like, hey, you know, unless there's direct action, kind of not interested, and we're just gonna work out and have fun right. a little bit. So you gotta also realize the Philippines. You know, you had you had Afghanistan, you had Iraq. You had the Horn of Africa, the North Africa, and the Philippines. Mm. So Philippines wasn't like the number one theater in everybody's radar at that time. Right. It was a lower priority. Lower priority. The Pacific was a lower priority. So they probably weren't getting all the, the funds that they needed to do right. what they needed to do. Right, yeah. right, right. And is the main kind of responsibility for these special forces guys to train their local counterparts? Yeah. Their main responsibility to train their local counterparts and then help them identify these high-value targets. Mm. So... At the time, we, we suspected that we, you know, we knew where all the high-value targets were, right? I'm pretty sure we would pass that information down to the Philippine military, the Philippine mm. government to let them know. But for some reason, like, the Philippine government had like a law at the time where they didn't allow foreign military to have any direct action in their theater, right? Okay. And so they would have to do it themselves. But at the same time, you know, not only were we there you know, showing high-value targets, but we're building up schools, we're building up roads. So that's kind of like a, a moneymaker for them a little bit. Like well, if we were to take out the high value targets, then there'd be no reason for us to stay in theater to help build the roads, to build the schools. So we always like, we suspect and I'm pretty sure this is what happened. We tell them the high value targets, they knew exactly where they were and they basically just didn't do anything or they had moles inside the government who told the high value targets to like leave. Yeah. And then, but we still continue to Tip build, them off. Yeah. And we consider the, consider the build that, build that area up. So that is interesting because that is the Philippines, right? It's pretty infamously corrupt. You know, you find out a lot. Of, <laughs> you find out a lot afterwards think, in retrospect. <laughs> I think you figure out that every government has some sort of corruption. You just right. wonder like what the degree is and what do you define corruption, right? Right, right, right. You know, exactly. So, How do you define it? Yeah. Right, exactly. You, you, you know, I've lived in China before, so we know yep. there's a little bit of there. <laughs> a little but bit. But then again, you look at it in America, you know, we're both there's Americans. There's a little bit there too. <laughs> just, well, what can you say? You know, who are we to say? Exactly. You know, we're not judging. It's, exactly. It's all across the board, all yeah. across the board. But but it makes sense, right? Because they need those resources. They need that help and whatever intel that is advantageous to them they can use it or or not yeah and at that time too like the tourism was all around manila and mm. uh, subic city right it's like little beachhead and stuff like that but in the south nobody no foreigners going to the south right so how do you build up military or how do you get funds down there you know why not have the military who can provide security but also we can build roads and stuff like that to build up the people down there too right so yeah who knows? Huh. Who knows, man? You know, this is all in my 24-year-old head kit. You right, know? Right. So who knows? Maybe I'm totally off here. Yeah, you know, yeah, Maybe yeah. I'm just but, making uh, this up in my head. Maybe it's in my head. <laughs> That's but what I believe at the time. this is how the world has worked for a long time, well, right? So, so here's the thing, though. Like, when you go to Iraq, 
you start saying, okay, well, this doesn't make sense. You know, you, you're totally innocent, totally naive, like building the government. You've been in a year. Man, I didn't find weapons, weapons of mass destruction. Oh, we're in the Philippines. Wait, wait, we know these high value targets, but why aren't we taking them out? So you start like, this <laughs> you is when your the wheels the start turning a little bit after you're 23, 24, 25 years old in the military. You're like, you know what? I don't think we're the good guys anymore. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we're totally 100% the good guys. Right. So this is when then when you start getting older and like, uh, people are like, man, I don't know if they're, uh, you know, 100% like trust the government anymore. Right, 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 right. Like, what am I doing? What, am I what doing? are we doing? Yeah. Right? Or, you know, you start looking at like, okay, this is not 100% what they're telling us. Are there other reasons here? You know, right. you start looking at talking about following the money. People talk about conspiracy theories and stuff like that. It's like, well, it's not conspiracy theory if it's true. Yeah. Right. And mostly you find that the government does not tell the people 100% the truth. Of course. Because most of the people don't want to know. Most people don't want to know or they can't handle it anyways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they so, don't. Yeah. They don't want to believe. They right? don't want to believe. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Doesn't anyways. fit their narrative. Yeah. So anyway. So. Yeah, man. So was the Philippines the last or did you have another? No, stint? that was the last one. So okay. I was done in 2006 and then I said, you know what? I'm good. I'm done with the military. Yeah, Iraq, Philippines, I'm good. I think I'm just going to get out now. And then I did, you know, did the reserves in Chicago, found a job doing sales and kind of like do myself in Chicago. So, you know, cause I'm from Chicago. So I was a way for me to get close to my family. Right. So I stayed with my family. My parents were living around there. And so about five years did, did five years as a salesperson in Chicago, got my MBA there at Northwestern. And then, mm. um, I actually wanted to leave, you know, as soon as I got this job, you know, so like I was telling you, I got hired right out of the military. So a lot of, you know, headhunters basically help you find a job. And so mm. I got this job and, I, but right away I was looking to get out, you know, as soon as of I the got job of the job. Yeah. Oh, I, I just, you know, I was, cause I was at that time I was like the headhunters, they line up like 12 different companies. Huh. I got interviewed at Amazon, Caterpillar and all these things. Right. Right. And, for me, I mean, I'm just thinking like this is a way to practice interviewing. Right. You know, because it's just, so I interviewed over like 24 different companies at two different conferences and I got very good at interviewing. Mm. And so, but I got this job because it was in Chicago. I was like, well, I need to learn sales because I don't know how to sell. Right. You know, so, so I thought it was a good job. And, and they, that was a, a, a good company. They, so good of a company that I actually stayed with them for 13 years. Even though you were about to leave in the I was, beginning. The first year I was already <laughs> trying to get my MBA and just get out of there and try to find out. So, but I graduated, got my MBA, and I was about to leave, but they're like, hey, we want to promote you, and we want to move you to Los Angeles. I'm like, well, I like Los Angeles. Mm. So they sent me and became a manager in Los Angeles. I was there for five years, and then I was ready to come to Taiwan to go back to learning Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> for the fourth time. Fourth time. This fourth is four. Time. All right. Yeah, I know, We're keeping track right you now. You know, exactly. This is fourth time. And then they're like, hey, you know, we have a position in Beijing. Why don't we just make you, we need a manager in Beijing. Okay. You don't need to speak Chinese. We just need, because we got leadership. Right. You know, because in China, we just don't trust uh, the leadership mm. in China. But you're you're not only American, you have the military background, but you've been with the company at the time now. It was like eight or nine years already. Okay. So I already had grown up in this culture that they could trust. Mm. So why don't we go to Beijing? I was like, okay, yeah, sure. I want to be in China. Why not? You yeah, know, you I can learn for, for the fifth time. I could try to <laughs> learn for the fifth time. Exactly. I could go out there, right? Not So to speak, I'm already in my mid-30s then. I'm already, like pretty old, you know, but... Hey man, you never never told to start. Right. Start yeah. Language, 100%. Honestly. 100%. So, yeah, so I was there as a manager and I was I, What kind of company is, was this? What were you selling? Um, so it was lighting controls. So, do you know the dimmer that yeah. dims lights? So, it's a company called Lutron. Lutron. And in 1967, the owner of the company invented the first lighting control dimmer. Wow. That was his patent. Wow. And then in 1969 started the company, established the company. So, for the last 60 years, all Lutron does is lighting controls, and it's like over a billion dollar company. Like, and they pretty much control the market of dimmers, or they did before, yeah. Okay. Well, so so they moved from dimmers 
to you know at the time fluorescent lights you can dim fluorescent lights oh, right. so they had the patent to to dim fluorescent lights so every single fixture and LEDs so you think about it, every single fixture had a product of a Lutron product inside it wow so it wasn't just the wall switch on the wall because had, Lutron would always say the the wall switch was its biggest competitor because most people think of multiple toggle switches on and off mm-hmm. instead of having a dimmer to dim the lights right so so that for the dimmer but also the fixtures but also electronic shades so they do electronic shades that they want to control the natural light as well. So they find, try to find a balance between electric light and uh, natural light. Yeah, so they did. They, they made a niche out of that and yeah. wouldn't own. It was, it was very lucrative for them. Now they have a lot of more competitors now because I guess people still don't see lighting as important. Um, we were doing good for like setting the mood, but also it also saved energy at the time too with the, with the Obama administration and produced all these incentives for that. Mm-hmm. So it was very good for us then. But uh, yeah, it's been a little bit harder now because it was still privately owned, if you can believe it. So the owner of the company was still alive. Still now? Well, then he passed away like four or five years ago. Okay. So it's on to the second generation. But okay. The owner of the company was the inventor, was an engineer, Purdue grad, a former Navy submarine oh. guy. But he passed away. And so it's, I guess the company is having harder and harder times to like reinvent itself. Yeah, that's you always know? hard, it's especially always hard. that generational yeah, shift. Yeah, exactly. That's the worst part. Hard, yeah. And then so I was in, in China. And really, it's hard for us to compete because we weren't the cheapest. You know, mm. we're a luxury brand, more expensive. In China, the electronics, they do things for dirt cheap. Now, even Chinese electronics, importing, like exporting, importing into America was still cheaper than <laughs> our U.S.-made manufacturing. Right. So imagine trying to compete a U.S.-made manufacturing that has import tax in China against Chinese manufacturers in their own country. Exactly. No. It's, it's not, not a winning game. It's very difficult. Yeah, exactly. It's very difficult. So... Anyway, I did that three or four years. I, I, they said I, they wanted me to do that for three or four years as a contract. Mm. And after three or four years, we could decide if I want to continue. I was like, you know what? I was doing private, you know, like tutoring Chinese class to learn a little bit. But my Chinese was still horrible. <laughs> so, okay, this is my chance. <laughs> Finally. Three, three years. Three years. I'm going to, you know, after I'm done, I'm going to go one year. Yeah. Take a sabbatical. Intense. Intense. Tsinghua. I'm going to go. You know, Tsinghua is like Tsinghua the Harvard. Yeah. yeah. It's like known as the Harvard of, you know, Beijing. And so I did that for six months. I was in the in the, the summer, no, the, the winter time of Tsinghua, mm. 2019, I think. Yeah, 2019. Okay. COVID. COVID happens. Oh, my goodness. And then we had to cancel classes, and it was done. I was like... I also went to Beijing, I believe, in the summer of 2019. So we were there pretty much the yeah, exact pretty much the same, same time. time. Yeah, basically, right. And we had no idea, and you actually knew one of my uh, one of the students at the school that I taught at. We have yep. a mutual friend. He yeah. uh, shout out to Alex from yeah. Ukraine. Yeah, Alex was a classmate of mine, and then Chris as well too. Right, so, right. Yeah, so. And you actually had visited our campus at because Schwartzman. Of, oh, I was so jealous. Oh, <laughs> okay. you, like you were allowed the inside the, the oh yeah they held like the a, like, gates yeah, because yeah. it's pretty elite yeah exactly not like the building i was in i think the building that we they taught iup when i was in was probably considered the oldest building in Tsinghua. yeah and the shorts shortsman was like the newest, newest. yeah and so the most expensive it was beautiful i was so, <laughs> I was so angry I was like, what am i doing i should have done this it was awesome yeah so anyway so COVID happened and you know then they were like closing everything down and i was seeing my girlfriend at the time mm. but i had family issues so i was like you know what i'll just go to america real quick help with the family and then they shut the borders down. And I'm like, well, I can't see her. But me, I'm like, this is just going to pass. This is going to go to Easter. And then past Easter. And they went into springtime. And then went into summertime. So my girlfriend and I were apart for 10 months. Mm. 10 months. I'm like, man, I'm doing online, long distance. And I'm like, we don't know if we're going to see each other again. 
Wow. So I proposed to her in October online. <laughs> oh, no way. Yeah, I know. You did a Zoom proposal. Zoom proposal. <laughs> okay. I had no choice. Okay. And, and did you have a fake background or was it, no, did you have beaches in the background or? No, I didn't have anything. So her friend was like a ring designer. So, oh. so I had her design the ring in China. So basically we just shipped the ring to her house and said, oh, will you marry me and stuff like that. And you know, of course she said, yes, obviously I'm, I'm married to her now, but don't bring it up around her because she's not happy with the proposal still. So it's not a, okay. Oh, you didn't, you didn't pull out all the stops on the zoom call. Not enough apparently. And so, and so after that we went to Turkey because, you know, mm. we found out that if we go to go to Turkey, you know, we can get married there officially. It's an international country. So it recognizes our marriage as like legally married. And I just got the gold card in Taiwan. So I, the way I was thinking of this is like, hey, if I marry her, then I can pay. For, I can get for the the um, the spouse visa to Taiwan, okay. and then we can come to Taiwan and live together in Taiwan. That's how. So that's how it went, right? <laughs> Little did I know, you know, one. The PRC, the you know, we call it like the the mainland China, right? In Taiwan, there's a little bit of a conflict. Oh, there is. Yeah, there's just a tiny little bit of a conflict, and so we, we the, might have to get into they, that later. Okay, they, so I the, heard about that. The, the, the government really didn't 100 percent trust my wife's uh, visa. They didn't think it was a real marriage. Okay, so the Taiwanese government, <laughs> that's right, didn't trust that this Beijinger, <laughs> and <laughs> well, so hold on. So that's what we believe. Here's here's the other official policy. Apparently, there's a policy in Taiwan too is that you have to get married within your home country. So that we're supposed to get married in China okay. or in the United States, but okay. not in a third country because none of us have passports in Turkey. All right, so they apparently had this policy that says, if you're not married by the third country, we don't recognize your marriage. But because of this a gold card thing, which is still kind of, was still kind of new right. at the time, about two years ago, right? A year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. They basically, well, in, in America, they recognize a third country's marriage. So since America recognizes it, we're going to recognize it as well. So I guess we were the exception it's a crazy come, story. Yeah, we were. That's oh, convoluted. Oh, it was so frustrating though in Turkey because we were there for six months, and uh, we don't speak Turkish. And <laughs> hold know. on, hold on, wait. Why did you choose Turkey? You could have chosen any other third country that, at least now that we know that the U.S. recognizes. So why did you pick Turkey at that time? Our friends were, um, they were looking to move to Turkey, so they had just been in Turkey over that summer, and so. When I mean that's basically it, honestly. <laughs> like it's been like 15, 20 years since I went to Iraq. I haven't learned much about like trying to do a lot of research. I, <laughs> I see an opening and I go for it. And you go for it. I just go for it. So that's why you. This is your romantic journey yeah. to Turkey was because your friends were going there. They so my friends like, were in Turkey and they said, hey, you know, because there was no COVID, there was no restrictions in COVID. Right. Right. Yes, and yes. so they're just like, just go there, and we were like, we didn't have to quarantine. And everybody, there's no like no vaccinations, vaccinations, anything like that. There's no requirement to do anything. So, but actually, you know what? Because like our visa in Turkey, I think like for U.S. citizens is six months. Okay. But for Chinese citizens, it's only three months. Okay. So we actually became residents in Turkey. Wait, what? Yeah, we were residents in Turkey, but we had so. But for us to be legal, we actually had to leave Turkey for like a week and come back in. So we actually went to Ukraine. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. So we were in Ukraine, we connecting to Ukraine. I don't know how this happened, but we were in Ukraine December two thousand nineteen, before the whole Ukraine things as well. So we were in like Kiev, or, because we had a friend in, which is visiting. It's another we, friend connection. Another friend connect. Well, you gotta just yeah. So once again, I see an opening, <laughs> and I go. You know, like oh, we go to Kiev, and then we can extend our visa. So yeah, we were in Ukraine. Here's the crazy thing, though: we weren't even allowed in Ukraine for a little bit. 
Customs guy, the customs guy saw our. We weren't even Your married. Your whole we were, visa trail. Yeah. Like, so here's 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 the the crazy thing. So even though we got married, we had a ceremony in Ukraine. We didn't actually officially get legally married. Oh, sorry, no, we had a ceremony in Turkey. Okay. But we didn't officially get legally married in Turkey yet, so we don't have, actually have the documents. So here I am bringing my fiance, but my wife, but With not. Quotes. Yeah. yeah, because she's not legally married to us. Right. And we're trying to get into Ukraine, and the guys looking at our paperwork. Why are you guys coming to Ukraine? A U.S. citizen in it China. So, it looks sketchy. And it looks that, so sketchy. And that morning, the article apparently, like the U.S. found a Chinese spy. <laughs> like there's a U.S. lady. There's a lady from China. A lady named Grace from no, Beijing. There's a lot of girls named Grace. Okay, but apparently, it's like she was sleeping with a senator <laughs> in uh, the U.S. And so they just Senator it, James from <laughs> Chicago. Who knows, right? <laughs> but so there was this article in the morning where they caught a Chinese spy. Who was sleeping with like U.S. senators to get into the government, and so you, oh, and so right. the Ukrainians like we're not letting you in. The, this no and way. We're like, I don't have a job then, you know, because I just left my job at that time. I'm like, man, I don't know where to go. I don't have any money. Are we going to sleep in Ukraine in the airport? You know, but it worked. And after like complaining, I think I was in tears almost before I like, come on, man, do you think we're going to come to Ukraine to, yeah, to right. just like <laughs> What are we gonna do to here? Engage in espionage. Yeah, I know. What are we an gonna ex West Point guy? Yeah. Like, come on. Well, I definitely definitely mentioned my West Point thing. Okay, <laughs> I just said, look, we just got married. We're just visiting a friend. He's like, well, if you had more proof, like a like a tourist group, if you could bought a tourist group thing to prove that you guys are here on tour. Funny. Like, no, I don't know anything about that. How's I gonna prove? Like, here, you want me to buy it? I'll pay. I'll pay two hundred dollars right now for the tourist right, group. Right to get a tour group. But yeah, eventually after complaining, being there for two or three hours, he's like, fine, just go. So he let us in. So we were there for about a week and then Ukraine visiting the friends and stuff like that. But <laughs> well, that was our Ukraine story. And then he came back to Turkey, became residents. And, uh, and then we were there for six months because actually, so this is February, 2020. Okay. Taiwan, COVID was hidden. Right. So they weren't letting anybody in anyway. So we were stuck in Turkey for, for four or five months. So this whole plan to get married in Turkey was basically ultimately to get to Taiwan because you had gotten the gold card in Taiwan. Yeah. But you also wanted to bring your new wife yeah, to Taiwan with well, you. And, and Taiwan, you know, it's Mandarin speaking. Right. So for my wife, she can speak Mandarin. I yes. want I want to learn Mandarin still. <laughs> <laughs> for the seventh or eighth seventh or, or tenth time. I pretty much decided it's almost a, a, just a failure. Lifelong. <laughs> I know. I think I might want to give up here. I don't know. It's never going to happen possibly, obviously. But so, yeah. So we wanted to be in, the, in Taiwan, Mandarin speaking, you know, mm -hmm. area, you know. And, uh, you know, my family's from here. I might have some family, friends and stuff like that. You know, at least we can speak the language and stuff like that. And, and the code card gave me like a three-year thing. So I could live here for two or three years. And while we're applying for the U.S. visa at the same time. So we're applying for the wow. U.S. visa. So you seek refuge in Taiwan for yeah, well, the <laughs> refugees in Taiwan. Who would have known? Who knows? Going from Hawaii first, right? Uh, yeah. Iraq, uh, Philippines, back to the States, out to Beijing, to Turkey, and then a little short trip to Ukraine, Ukraine. Yeah, back exactly. to Turkey. And then finally, <laughs> Taiwan, did they recognize this marriage in Turkey? They finally did. And the only reason I found out about it, you know, our... You know, your cards, we have a guy named Tom, right? Tom, yes. Tom's the guy. Even though he's not a go-kart guy anymore, he's kind of like, he knows it all. And so they did like, you know, oh, so the crazy thing, we got to Taiwan in May 2020 or 20, yeah, 2020. No, last year, 2021. Okay. COVID hits. So, so <laughs> we get to May, we get to Taiwan and we're in quarantine and then COVID hits and we're stuck. We can't even go out in Taiwan. 
and we're so welcome to Taiwan. Welcome to Taiwan, and we're stuck here. And then so so Tom, you gold card to try to like you know welcome everybody in. So they did like a Zoom call for all the new gold card people. And I told Tom our story, and he's like, "Wait, I know your story. I'm I was in a meeting about your story about the Turkish thing, and he's the one who told me about the policy that Taiwan doesn't recognize a marriage from a third country. But they said because maybe it was him who suggested it." The U.S. recognized it, so they made that exception for us to come in. So right. we're not even really supposed to be here, but somehow we're in. Like Taiwan has some amazing ex- exceptions, you know, <laughs> for all the bureaucracy and all frustration. There, there were some parts where holes there's the- a little bit of loopholes <laughs> where they kind of let people in. So I guess you can be happy about that. So that's our. That's we're in Taiwan. Yeah, that is the journey to Taiwan. Taiwan, yeah. A little bit roundabout, but you've made it here. And then we met, we met together, and then we found out that we had mutual friends and everything. So Exactly. And our mutual friend, by the way, is Ukrainian. Is he really? Yeah. I had no idea. Alex. Alex and, Guzenko. Shout out to Alex, Alex, my boy. Our boys, I actually just spoke to him recently. Uh, we, we text each other, um, but he is in Kiev, Kiev right oh, now. Oh, is he really? So, yeah. He left uh, China? He left China, and he's been in Ukraine. So we've been texting back and forth during this whole you know, Russia, Ukraine. Did he go back to Ukraine because of what was going on or because he had his visa? Most of foreigners in China, their visas just ran out or quarantine, you know, just lockdown. So what was his? I don't know if he went directly from uh, China to Ukraine. I don't know if he stopped off in a third country, but definitely uh, most of the Schwarzman scholars at that time had to leave China. They had to leave. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you telling me about that, that they had to like, yeah. yeah, it was a whole thing. I'm, I'm just hearing there's a whole exodus of foreigners from China. One, you can't get back in unless you teach English, possibly. Yeah, and even that, because the government cracked down, has oh. been cracking down really hard on private Private education. tutoring. Yeah, yeah private when we tutoring. were gone, they just they cracked that whole thing down. And they just killed up like that billion-dollar industry. Exactly, so. and now tech and real estate as well. So It's crazy. Yeah, There's a lot of stuff going on there. Though? It's been two years since we've been to China. Two I years. know. Over two years now. Because this last two years has just been a... I've been living in a suitcase, you know, for the last two years. Really? Because, you know, I left China thinking I'm just going to be back for just like a a month trip. (laughs) My stuff's still in Beijing. Like, it's still in storage. Are you serious? Yeah, it's still in storage. Wait, 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 wait. Really? Two years. Two years. You've left your stuff in storage. Yeah. Yeah. I was really lucky because I was living off campus in the uh, Wudalko area, yeah. the, the Korean. I mean, it used yeah. to be a Korean hotspot, but yeah. basically just expats nowadays. Yeah. Um, and I had an apartment there and it was stuck in there. Like you, I thought I was going to be able to go back. But of course, lo and behold, one month turns into two years and I wasn't able to get back. Luckily, the school helped me out and packed my stuff and sent it That's out nice. to me in Taiwan, which was huge. That's huge. Yeah, so I got lucky, but I know a lot of people like you who they are stuck. My stuff is was stuck in there. I I have a um, you know a Xiaomi um, one of those electric scooters. Yeah, that I paid it was like brand new. It's like in the basement of that apartment somewhere. Probably oh, so just sad. I know because it'd sad. be so fun to ride that here. I know it would be, but yeah. So I so if it's even still working, right? yeah, right. And yes, or if someone so, took it, someone probably took it. Who right. knows, man? I mean, they're not they're pretty cheap and but they're nice. It was fun. It was fun. Where right Where did you live in Beijing? Uh, Sunli Tour. Okay, Sunli Tour. Yeah, Sunli Tour. Yeah, I loved it, man. That's the expat area. Exactly. It's very modern, very expatish. Yeah, basically, it was yeah. awesome. It was great. A lot of malls and shopping and great restaurants. I went to amazing Peking duck place out there. Yeah, better than Wudao Call, man. Oh. I remember. I remember going to Haidian. Okay, you know, and I, I would yeah. actually bike there. 
Mm. So I'd actually go out there. It's like a college area. Oh, it's all college. Yeah. yeah. And then the Imperial Summer Palace as well. But yeah, yeah it's yeah. a lot of college yeah, colleges so out there. It's, it's it's cool, but it's not like so many tourists. One of yeah. the like, it's the expensive luxury area. You got all the like luxury brands there. Exactly. Expensive restaurants. Yeah, it was nice. In the East, there was like, even though there's a West and East, we'd never go in each other's sides. Exactly. Because it, it takes a long time too. Beijing yeah. is enormous city. Oh, yeah. So just going across, it's it takes it's an hour. It, yeah. yeah, it's not worth it. And right. traffic too. Yep. And then and then the uh, the MRT. No, they don't call it the MRT there. The subway. Whatever right. they call it there. The DTA. Right. That's my only Chinese. Exactly. There you go. Eleventh time we got it. Some got it down. Got that thing. Wow. So do you miss China at all? Yeah, totally. For sure. I mean, Taiwan's great. We were just talking about though, but like. Unfortunately, Taiwan's in a very tough situation. Yes. It's a very tough situation. Like, you know, if you're not in the chip manufacturing area, right, you're, you're not like, there's not much development right. here. It's really hard to, you know. Yeah, it's very limited. Very limited. And also, like, just the sheer size, the scale of China. Mm-hmm. China is, like, 20 times larger than Taiwan. The whole population of Taiwan is one city, the whole population of Taiwan is smaller than the population of Shanghai. Exactly. That is in complete lockdown. I think Taiwan is probably around 23 million. Something like that. And right. then Shanghai, I believe, is around 25 million people. So Yeah, and it's whether you include like the suburbs, right? Right. Just because the city proper, right? It's 23, 24. You include the suburbs, you're like a 29, 30. And that's just one tier one city. That's yeah, one, right? You, you right. haven't talked about Beijing. You haven't talked about Tianjin. You haven't talked about yep. the other Chengdu places. Chengdu and Chongqing yep. and yeah. yep. Xi'an. I mean, they're still... So, exactly. so it's so sad. And also like, you know, I try to develop like relationships in Taiwan, like factories and stuff like that. But like, you can't beat the price and the scale in China, unfortunately. Right. Like it's just half the cost. Yep. Half the cost. And then you always have the threat of like China invading, invading Taiwan or something. Right. Mm-hmm. So really like, it's just a really tough situation. Yeah. A really tough situation here. So let me ask you about that. So your wife is from Beijing, born and raised. Yeah. She was, basically. Uh, yeah, she was basically, she, um, she was born on her, her, they call her hukou, right? Yeah. In, in her laojia is yeah. in Anhui. Yep. Yeah. Anhui. But she, they, she moved there about three or five years old to Beijing. So she grew up in Beijing okay. all her, almost all her life. Oh, but she still has hukou in, in Anhui. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, well, that's how it works, right? Like, okay. That that's is the way uh, the, household registration for those who don't know. Yeah, and that's how China controls like population, uh, population movement. movement. Exactly. It's and like, benefits too. Benefits, exactly. So for all our stuff like, you know, the weirdest thing, like when we had to get married, we had to have uh, like, some, like a single Evidence, like mm, evidence that you prove that you're you have single. To prove that you're single before you get married. Right. You know, in, in America, <laughs> we don't have that. Right. Exactly. So I was like, Taiwan what is that? that too. Right. Exactly. So I was like, well, you got to prove I'm single. But like in America, it's just like writing a piece of paper and yeah. then like the government just like, okay, we're going to make money here. I'll just, right. I don't have, of course, I don't right. have a record of you being married <laughs> of here. Of course. So, but then, but in, in China, she had to like go back to her hometown and apply and get all the her birth certificates and her single thing and to get it notarized and translated into English. So it was like a whole deal. You know what I found out too? The notarization process is just a big money making thing. I know. Turkey. I mean, yes, Turkey. exactly. Oh All around the world. Oh my gosh. It's I like, you need it. a stamp? You need a stamp. All right. And the guy doesn't, you know, even Turkey, they look at your thing and they're like, oh, but they don't even know what they're looking at. Of course. And they're like, do you swear that this is true? Right. I and, swear, dude. And in Turkey, I had to go Stamp. to three different notification processes. So you had the local one, and then you had the mid-tier, and then you had the monk, the, the provincial one or something, and then you right. had the ministry one. So I had to go to three different tiers to get the same notarization. And nobody knows. They're trusting the person before. And the right. guy who, who on the ground, who's the, the, the local guy, doesn't know what he's stamping. <laughs> 
they don't care. No. They just make sure you you pay the money. Pay the money. I heard that's a good retirement benefit for some of these judges, I guess. Mm. I didn't know it was such a money making scam. Like this is so that's yeah, it's the same process. When I was trying to get to China, the process of doing all that paperwork in New York City and going to all these government bureaus oh, and yeah. everyone, I mean, I, there was so much paperwork. It took so much time and it was expensive because it just it just adds up. It just keeps adding yeah, up. Yeah, you're like forty, fifty dollars here, eight hundred dollars yep. here, and then you gotta like go through the line, the process too. Yeah. The time wasted. Then or if you don't do it yourself. Then you hire an agent. Exactly. And the agent's making much money. They're making like, exactly. I think, a thousand bucks or something. That's like the people who stay in line to get the PlayStation for someone else. I, you know, did you know in New York <laughs> they have the like the, the stay in line PlayStation holder? Like the people that stay in line for Broadway shows? I'm telling you, it's a profession. Yeah, they get like hundred bucks a, a, an hour just to stay in line for people. I think that's what gold car people should do here. It's about all the uh, business we you, can do. <laughs> I, I learned though in Taiwan, people like standing in line. That the Taiwanese people, it's not because they love standing in line, but they, basically because of Google's not trust, you know, you can't trust like the uh, uh, the evaluation for some of these restaurants. Right. But, if you, but when people stand in line, they're willing to stand in line. That means that this restaurant is good. Right. So when they see that long line, like, okay, this must be a good restaurant. So they'll stand in line for that. It's that nice herd mentality. They, they they see a line and they're like, I need to jump in that line. And then afterwards they're like, what, 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 what is this place? What is, yeah, exactly. They have no idea. And maybe it's island life, you know, maybe things are a little <laughs> yeah. bit slower and stuff like that. Right. So yeah, no, my wife can't stand it though. You know, she's still yeah. Beijinger. So she, yeah, that's what I was getting to. So as a Beijinger, as a mainland Chinese girl, was this her first time to Taiwan? It was. Okay. Oh yeah. Well, it's, it's a big deal to try to get a mainland person to Taiwan. I know. One, mainlanders aren't letting... The mainland government is not letting their Chinese people come to Taiwan. Actually, they're not letting anybody they're out. They're not letting anyone out at no, all. Right I've heard now. passports being cut and green cards right. being taken away. But this is even like two or three years ago before COVID. Right. They, because the whole you know conflict between Taiwan and China, they they weren't letting her any any mainlander to come to to Taiwan. Yeah. So How did she manage to do that? She married me. That's okay. basically it. <laughs> That's how you do it. It's a golden ticket here, yeah, James. Let me, let me tell you, my mom, you know, when I was single, she basically was trying to pin me out. She's like, you know, James, you know, your American passport is very valuable. It's very valuable. People would really marry you because of People that. Like, mom, really like they want to become American. I'm like, mom, are you trying to pin me out? She's like, yeah, well, I was in my mid thirties, I think. And she's losing hope for me. So basically she was trying to pimp you out. Basically. Instead of arranged marriage, she's just going, you know, your citizenship is pretty, pretty good looking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Not you. Sorry, James, you know. Yeah. But yeah, my wife, like, like, I think she learned a lot in Taiwan, though. Because, mm. you know, she grew up in China and she thought she had, like, free speech, right? So she, she felt like she had, like, whatever she can say, right? Because she felt like, I have freedoms that I want. You live in the first year tier a city. Yeah. I can have, like, things delivered within 30 minutes, mm. right? Alibaba, Taobao, like, it's all very convenient. But then I was like, babe, don't you know that when you, in WeChat, you can't speak code on certain right. things? like. You talk about religion or things mm -hmm. that's going on in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. You just be cold. And she's just so used to it. Right. And I remember the first time we were quarantining in Taiwan and when COVID exploded, right, in Taiwan. And people were, like, criticizing the Taiwan government mm -hmm. on a newscast. Mm -hmm. And she heard that. It's like, whoa. Whoa. You can actually criticize the government? She's like, you do that in China. Nobody's going to hear you again. But in Taiwan... Like people are saying how bad the CDC was doing, right. controlling it. They were they making have, a lot of mistakes. They were making mistakes. Mm -hmm. Didn't have the vaccines or anything like that. And mm -hmm. she was, she just couldn't believe that. It was for her the first time she actually experienced like true freedom of speech, speech. to criticize the government. The second time she experienced this, I think that she saw protests for minority groups to get equal pay. 
Oh, wow. And so people were on the streets just, you know, banging the drums and talking about equal pay and stuff like that. She's like, what is going on with all this noise? Whoa. Right? And she saw that. She actually felt like, wow, I feel so touched that this is actually happening. Because, Gandong. Yeah, Gandong. But, yeah. you know, because in China, you, you know, you're not going to get a whole people protest, okay? That's you not a get, good idea. You might, you might do that for 10 minutes and exactly. then you know that. That's their and power. party's over. That's it. Yep. So for her to see that and experience that in Taiwan, she made her realize, like, whoa, open her eyes a little bit. Like how perhaps... Huh. Perhaps she's not grown up to things that are what she's been told exactly how they seem to be. Right. I mean, it's the thing, right? It's hard to know what you don't know. Right. Because when you're in Beijing, as you were alluding to, she thought she had everything, which is you can feel like that when you're in Beijing. Right. When we're living in Beijing, life is good. Life is good. People don't realize that they think it's some kind of hell or some kind of, you know. No, it's great. It's 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 very convenient. We can order something and like within 10 to 20 minutes, it's going to be delivered. Mm -hmm. I'm not even talking about food here. I'm talking about like anything, anything. Anything. You could get like a like a fan, any device. (laughs) Like an air conditioner unit, and mm-hmm. it's gonna be within an hour at right. most. If it's longer than two hours, something's wrong, right? You can get within an hour or something. That was really, it was very convenient. Mm-hmm. Everybody got things delivered, and because like I think delivery fee was like a dollar U.S. dollar. It was so nice. Yeah, because it's that it's a labor issue. It's a scale issue, right? Yeah, scale issue, labor There's issues. So many hungry people who are coming in from other regions and they are willing to drive all day wherever yep. they want and you pay them a dollar, they're happy, you yeah. know? So you that's China. You earn the dollar that and also like, I mean, things are so cheap in China too. Yeah. You know, so you can buy, like I said, the electric scooter. Like in America, I think an electric scooter is like 2,000 bucks or something like that. Right. But you can, that same exact electric scooter in China is actually produced for like five or $700. Yeah, I mean, it's literally the same scooter, right? It's literally <laughs> the same scooter. It's literally the same scooter. Literally right? just a different sticker on it. It basically is. It basically is. It's literally the same scooter. So yeah, it's amazing. Right. China China, China life was great. Mm. I realized it, you know? But like I said, if, if you're in the first tier cities and you get all that stuff, everything's great. But if you're in like the other places, like you don't know. Yeah. Have you never experienced that, right? You're, you can step into a time warp. The disparity between first tier and second tier series is like night and day. Right. And right? second tier cities are still pretty huge. So, yes. I mean, it, it goes down, you know, you yeah. can go way out to the countryside. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, but like you're in Beijing or Shanghai, you can speak English. Most people yep. there can speak English and you can get around. Mm-hmm. You, know? and you don't even have to speak English. You don't have to, you can use the app. You right. don't even have to talk to anybody or interact with anybody. As long as you have an app, yeah. and the app's in English, you can get everything around. And I don't know if people fully realize how advanced the technology and the software and the AI and everything is in China, where if you don't have it, they will create it in a minute. Yes. I remember (laughs) that was the first time in in Beijing where they had the sharing bike app. Right. When I first found out about that. And that you don't, it's not like in Taiwan, Taiwan, you have to put it into certain places. Yes. This was like all over the place. You can literally just drop it off on the street. You have a problem with it. You can just actually drop it off on the street and you go to the next corner and pick up another one. There was no, at the time, there was no like special places. Yeah. No designated no places. No designated places for these sharing apps. Yeah. <laughs> Mobike. I think it was Mobike, right? And then it was like Ofo. The yellow one was really awful. Yeah. Awful. And yeah. Yeah. It, was, it had a. They had some scandals too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but now it's, now it's Meituan. I think it, Mobile got bought by Meituan, so it's like yeah. You know, the Meituan like ones were pretty nice when they I were was nice. There. The green, I know the, the white and green ones. The or, white and green and the, the orange. The, the, or, the yellow ones. Oh, the yellow ones. Yeah, those was, were yeah, those it, were good. I think it's yellow ones or orange or whatever. Yeah, they were nice. I like the white and green ones too. Those yeah. were nice as well. They were nice. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Nice. The, the white and green ones were really nice. Exactly. Super nice. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah, you could just download the app right away and you can start using it. Like if you don't have yeah. the app, you can just download immediately and you can even use it right away. It was great. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, life in China was, yeah, really, um, 
you get used to it, right? Mm -hmm. Really get used to that. It was nice. Mm -hmm. What about the drawback? And did you have any bad experiences while you were living in Beijing? Um, or just while you were in the mainland in general? You know, for me, because like uh, my company was paying me. Mm. So there's a lot of expenses and stuff. Like if you're an expat in China, you're living, you, at the time, you're, you're living very large. rich. You're, you're a considered king. very rich. Yeah. So I got everything like delivered. I got whatever I wanted. Like I even had a dryer. You know, oh, you know, I thought you said a driver. I, I could have gotten a driver. <laughs> yeah, right. Gotten, but everything was so easy with uh, DT Dacha, right? It's the yep. Uber yep. at the time. You know, and, they literally and, killed Uber, Didi. Uh, oh my gosh! <laughs> They're like, get out of our country. You know, I didn't realize that Didi, you know, bought Uber in 2016. Yeah. So I was using the Uber app, and it wasn't working for me. And I didn't speak Chinese very well. I didn't speak Chinese very well at the time, still, right? <laughs> so I was like, what is going on? I didn't know how to use Didi Dacha at all. So. Yeah. But I saw, and you didn't realize this. You had to download a whole separate China Uber app. Right. To do that. Yeah. Nobody, t nobody tells you this. Exactly. Yeah. You got to so figure you, it out. So that maybe that was a drawdown, I guess. It's just that so many different apps and you know which ones to use. I guess the scary thing, I guess, is what I've heard. Now, this is a rumor. Mm. Is that regardless of what app you download, like the government has a way to peer into your electronics. For sure. So, yeah. There's no question. For right? sure. So, so anything you download or if, even for the electronics, like I bought my... I think my, my, my computer in, in China, mm. it, because it was a Chinese made computer mm -hmm. for the Chinese market, I've heard that, you know, this is a rumor. Okay. So don't take me on this. Once mm -hmm. again, I'm just, I don't know anything. Okay? <laughs> I was a 23 disclaimer. year old to Iraq who didn't even know why we were there. Okay. So just disclaimer, I don't know Jack, but I'm, I'm just like, just like the Philippines. I think this is what goes on. Is that conspiracy okay, theory yeah, that that the government has a way to look into your equipment if they really wanted to, mm -hmm. okay? That's so, not that out there. Okay. I mean, American companies are doing that too. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's just data. It's just go. data. So what's know? the corruption, right? Exactly. <laughs> so who's the good guys? Who knows? Well, exactly. You know, so you can't trust anybody. That's why That's yep. why you got to just trust yourself, really. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the drawback is well knowing that you, were, you could always, your information is never really private. Mm, in China, you know, right. always know that because even in China, like you know, I didn't realize, you know, in America, when you write like your name, mm. something simple as a name, it doesn't have to exactly match your passport, right? Mm. And I remember the first time I wrote my name for just my first and last name, but I didn't put my middle name. Mm. And the Chinese, you know, trying to open a bank, and they're like, yeah. they looked at my name, like, hey, you have two middle names here, and they're freaking out. Yeah, like how come it doesn't match? It's fraud. I know. <laughs> so, I, so I've had to learn that you have to, you have to give all your data. It looks exactly like your your passport or you're not going to open a bank card. You're not exactly. going to open up anything. It has to match your secret vault in everything. Everything's, <laughs> everything's given away there. Your secret file. Well, They're like, it doesn't match your secret file. Yeah. And then the other thing I didn't realize too, being, you know, being an American, it's like everything has to be notarized. Right? Yeah, right. Like your school, like your graduation from school and your certificates, they all have to be like kind of checked and say, I guess they had a lot of fraud. Exactly. Of people. It's that counterfeit thing. Yeah. They had counterfeit stuff. So yeah. you actually get it from your school, it had to be delivered a diploma. And then they had a, like, I haven't been in West Point over 20 years, guys. Okay, I, tried, and they, I know, and, it's like... Yeah, and it's still a military institution, so they're not... They weren't, at the time, updated to, like, getting a computer. <laughs> so you actually <laughs> had to, like, handwrite them and say, I want my diploma. <laughs> and my transcript. Send it through snail mail. Yeah, no, send you know, it on a horse. Yeah. <laughs> and you know why they call it cows, right? So in West Point, they actually call, like, you know, freshmen, sophomore. They have to call The first year is called plebeians. Second plebeians. year is called yearlings. Yearlings. And the third year is called cows. And the, yeah, fourth year is called um, firsties. Fir firsties. Firsties, right? Okay. Firsties. And so I heard this rumor once again. I don't know. <laughs> but they said like, apparently back like in the day, you weren't allowed to leave West Point until your cow year, your third <laughs> year. Because of, you know, you're, 
horses and travel is not like it is now with in terms of like planes and stuff like that. So you never saw your family for two years when you went to West Point until you're you're a cow. Right. So there's a saying in America where it says you're, we're going to keep doing this until the cows come home. Oh. So I've heard the reason why they say the, the, until the cows come home is not because the actual cows is the cows from West Point coming home. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Interesting yeah. saying, right? A little that's tidbit. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very famous uh, phrase. Phrase, right? In English. There you go. Until the cows come home. Until the home. Cow, cow, cows come home. A little wow. West Point knowledge for you guys. Exactly. James yeah, dropping, remember, the, dropping, dropping bombs Dropping here. bombs. You know, they make every single cadet memorize the history of West Point to be a tour guide. That's what we basically are. We're just modified tour guides. <laughs> of this prestigious institution up in the this fort in the mountains. Yeah, you know, New York. now it's been a while now. I really do you appreciate your time there. But I tell you, right, when you were a kid, you hated it. But after being outside of it, it's there is like, I guess once again, you go through this crucible and yeah. it's like a shared pain. The shared pain. Pain for everybody. Yeah. You realize like you got through it. Yeah. And you, uh, you, there's like, a, I guess there's like, you call it the network or ring knockers. Because you mm. get like, wear, a, ring, wear a, ring, a huge ring. Okay. And every time you hear people like slam the desk, you hear the ring knock it. Okay. Knock and you, I guess you, there is like kind of like a camaraderie between like the service academies. We make fun of each other as West Point, Naval Cad, and Naval Academy, and Air Force Academy, and the Coast Guard Academy. So mm. Five service academies. But in the end, we're all part of the same team. You kind of feel like, okay, well, we've been through a kind of a shared experience a little bit together. Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah, but it's true, right? Those lowest of points really kind of bring us up to the greatest times as well, or the memories. I do think so. I do think so. You just kind of, you learn to, I think you learn to deal with the pain. Actually, at, at my, my time, you learn how to deal with issues. You have nobody to complain to, you know, no no excuse. You don't blame anybody. You figure out how to get things done. You figure out as a team together how to get things done together, mm. right? Mm. So because of that, you, there's inherent, at least a baseline of trust. Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't say that uh, that'll get your foot in the door, mm-hmm. but that won't get you like, you know, that'll, that'll just get your foot in the door. You right. Know? You still got to prove yourself. You still got to do your things, right? You got, so. Exactly. So there's, yeah, most points like that. Hmm. So you mentioned that you were applying, I mean, you got the gold card, so yep. you were able, and then you figured out this kind of bureaucratic mess about uh, this paper trail and all slapping down accusations of being spies uh, and, and whatnot. <laughs> I've never had, I've had two <laughs> countries accuse us of being spies. So. And then you finally made it to Taiwan and you were able to bring your mainland Chinese wife from Beijing here and she got some eye-opening experiences as well. Uh, how long have you guys been here now? One year. We got here a year last year, so uh, we're in January. Yeah, so we're in one year. Okay, and then you said you were also applying for the U.S. visa at the same time. Well, so two years ago when we weren't married, we applied for the fiancé visa. Okay. So originally that's supposed to be the faster track visa, mm. but um, you know, we didn't know how long that was going to be, right? So I applied back, like I think, in July of two years ago. And then we got married in Turkey, and then I guess February or something while we were in Turkey, her mom got the packet that she can go interview for the fiance visa, okay. right? But we felt we got married already, you know? So and she didn't want to go back to China just to get an interview for a fiance visa. So we're like, well, oh. we don't want to lie. She, she wouldn't be able to lie yeah, on the interview, right? So we're like, you know what? We, we're married now. I might as well apply for the spouse visa. So I had to reapply oh, wow. for the spouse visa. So I actually applied twice to the fiance and the spouse visa. So that was like, Sixteen hundred dollars, you know, that's like eight hundred dollars per oh, application fee, it right? It costs that much money. It costs that much money. So, wow. looking at you, man, if you start doing that, okay, don't exactly. do it twice. I don't recommend Just getting don't COVID, do and I don't recommend applying twice if you <laughs> to get to, married. To get married, yeah, marriage it costs double cost for marriage. <laughs> um, and then, 
And so it applied ties and did the whole spouse. didn't get an agent, did it all by myself, you know, and I, it's, it's crazy. It's a work. It's yeah. great. She, she went to school in England. So we had to go get the like nine criminal record in England, had to get the nine criminal record in China too. So her dad had to go to our hometown as well, get the nine criminal record there. Wow. And then we were in Taiwan for a little bit too. So we had to get the nine criminal record in Taiwan as well. And so we applied everything and went through the Taiwan American Institute. Oh, yeah, 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 IT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no embassy in Taiwan, guys. The de facto. Yeah. Uh, just like there's no Taiwan embassy, guys. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this. Okay? Just FYI. Why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. Why not? Like, why isn't there an embassy? Sometimes I tell people there's a Taiwan embassy, but just to make it easy, but there really is not. Officially. Exactly. <laughs> and AIT is a fort, too. Looks like West oh, Point up on the mountain. And well, my, my wife loved this. She thinks it's beautiful up there. Yeah. It's right next to Costco, too. You know that? Right, right. They're living large up there. Yeah, Nehu. Nehu. Nehu's nice. Yep, exactly. Nice. If we decide to keep living in Taiwan, we might live up in Nehu. It's a nice place. Yeah, it's like a American enclave over there. It really there. is. Yeah. It really is. They you have townhouses over there. It's nice townhouses, yeah. nice restaurants, and Costco's huge there. It <laughs> exactly. was like... Yeah. You don't need to go anywhere after that. Yeah, not just Costco. I mean, they have a lot of like big box stores there. It really yeah, been, you know, looks, we, were, mm-hmm. we went over to AIT and then we went to Costco and, and that was all we saw. But we were okay. like, this is a nice place. Yeah, it's yeah. very convenient. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you guys come to Taiwan, you know, I don't know if I'd necessarily live downtown in Taipei. I would recommend, it depends what you want. I'll, I'll yeah, say that. Exactly. You know, Taipei is a little bit expensive. It's cool. It's got the history. It's got the modern stuff, you know, like in terms of English speaking stuff, but cost of living much cheaper someplace else yeah right you know? yeah you got to get out a little bit i think so yeah i think so right mm. so so before we uh jumped on the podcast you had mentioned that you got some good news grace was approved yeah the good okay. news is that about two weeks ago finally after two years uh the u.s government approved uh grace's visa so she has now the um, spouse visa and we have to go to America. You're supposed to enter in America into within six months or it expires. Mm. But once you're in, then they change you out to a, she automatically, the difference between the spouse visa and the, and the fiance visa is that they automatically apply for your green card. Oh, they do it. So automatically. automatically. So okay. once you enter the U.S., then three months, three weeks later, you're going to get their social security number and also your green card. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's nice. So mm. then we don't have to reapply for that. And then we'll be in the U.S. for, I think, I think it's like five years or something like that for spouse visa. So we, we still want to go back to China, even though despite what's going on in China. Oh, wow. Her family's there still. I still got to, I don't know how, when you're going to listen to this podcast. Though. Maybe she won't listen to this, but I'm going to repropose to her. You know, like, every, time, every time we see a wedding or proposal online, my wife gets super sad. I know I, well, I have to hear from her. But she's like, I wish I had a wedding. I wish oh, I had a good proposal. Yeah. You, you guys didn't really get anything. Yeah, so I got to re-propose to her there, and then and then remarry her. Yeah, I got to do the whole marriage ceremony again. So, but I'd rather do it in China because that's when her family's there. My parents are kind of like you know, in their seventies. They're kind of like you know, whatever. <laughs> right, right. Already married already. You know, most of my family's already you know I got married older. So right. So most of my family's like whatever. You know, you get married, not another marriage, not another ceremony. Right. <laughs> but with her, you're like, you know, I think every woman who kind of dreams of having a nice, beautiful wedding. I, you know, she's Chinese, so she's got the homeless romantic thing. So mm-hmm. she sees all the Chinese. I didn't realize how influential Korean dramas were. <laughs> so the Korean drama thing about marriage and stuff Korean like that. Korean dramas are oh. affecting those young Chinese women. Yeah, they do. They kill me. Korean <laughs> dramas. They just kill me. Damn Korean. you, Korea. I know. She loves Korean drama. <laughs> you know, all the Chinese we dramas. Korea. Too. Yeah, Korea is great. Because you guys are killing me for me selfishly. <laughs> you know? So, but so the Chinese drama is all, all all affected by Korean Korean influence, right? So she loves, 
I never heard of Blackpink before, though, so I know who Blackpink is now. Now you know, and you're going to have to hire them for the wedding now. Yeah, I can afford Blackpink. Right? <laughs> hey, guys. Blackpink. James is rich. He can afford it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You guys don't know the gold card. Because Taiwan, you know, you got the gold card, you must be rich, right? Yeah, gold card is the elite networking area of Taiwan. Exactly. Well, exactly. So even though it's so elite, you can make millions of dollars here, why would you want to leave, James? Please tell us. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not that smart, you know? <laughs> Despite going to West Point, going going to Iraq and the Philippines, I just you know I see an opening and, and I and you just take I it. I just go. I like oh, that. You like that. I like that. I like it. It's you the know? way to go. And uh, you know, America. I guess I, I my parents still haven't met Grace, my wife. Oh right. No, they haven't met each other. My brother hasn't met her. My parent, their parent, my parents are still haven't met. <laughs> They still think of her, you know, because my parents are Taiwanese, you know, before. So they're like, why did you marry like a mainland Chinese? Why, I why know. Why did you marry a spy? Like, why are you bringing this spy? Yeah. You know, <laughs> when, I, when I first went to China, I had an aunt who's Taiwanese, right? And she said, I only gave me one recommendation. She says, you know what? Whatever you do, don't date a Chinese person. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, she's this is when you first came to Taiwan? First came to, to Taiwan? Yeah, I came to Taiwan. I told her I was going to li live in China. She's like, don't get, don't get married to a Chinese person. I'm like, what about Hong Kong? Hong Kong is the same thing. Same thing. Don't, don't marry don't them. Don't do it. They got issues. Don't trust them. Yeah, they got issues. They like, got what? Issues. <laughs> you know, so it tells you what my family background is. You know? They're totally, they I love Taiwan. I think that's very Taiwanese, though. It is very Taiwanese. Yeah, yeah, like any foreigner. Like if they send their kids abroad to the States, it's like, don't you dare marry a foreigner. You know, and then I think <laughs> talk about racism in America, but I feel like Asia has more racism within exactly, each other. Because it's underground. It's like underground. everyone thinks we're not racist. Yeah. But that's the racism right there. Yeah, exactly. You say you're racist. <laughs> because I guess in like in America we think like all oh, Asians look alike, right? A little bit, right? right? Unite our Asians. Okay. You mm -hmm. guys don't know this. Uh you know, we're we're <laughs> Asian American guys, so we're not uh So we look exactly we're, the we're, same. So we could say this, okay? So it's not like we're like we can't we can't say this. So on you guys, don't think that we're racist here. <laughs> But, uh, you know, just because we look alike in the family background, there are within degrees within Asians, there are so like we call the discriminatory, um, maybe stereotypes. Yeah, it, so it gets complex. It gets complex. complex. <laughs> you know, you might think Taiwan and China the same, but it's not. Most people say when I'm from Taiwan, they're like, oh, we like Thai food. Thailand <laughs> exactly. and Taiwan, not the same thing. You just talked about that in the last podcast. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just gave up. I'm like, yeah, you know, Thai food's pretty good. Exactly. Well. I love that Pad Siu. Pad Thai, <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah, pad yeah. Thai in, in, uh, in Taiwan. Thai, yeah, it's good. <laughs> so what about Grace's mainland Chinese family? What did they say to her about marrying this American? You're checking off all the boxes. You're an American military dude, um, and you are Taiwanese. So. Actually, her dad didn't trust me. Yeah. She, he thought I was a spy. Honestly. Why would he? You know, yeah, well, mil military, but also he's, he thought for some reason, because like, I guess he thought I was trying to marry her for her money or okay. something, because her dad goes into construction, so they have like some a little bit of money. You know, construction mm. is very lucrative That's, in China, yeah. right? It's a very good business. So well, it, recently. Yeah, recently. Not now, mm. right? Not now, but... You know, when we were apart for 10 months, you know, what he said was like, hey, he was asking some friends in America, like, hey, check on Grace's boyfriend in case he hasn't already remarried. You know? Oh, yeah. He like definitely didn't. He didn't. Definitely, he did a full background check on you. Yeah, he didn't definitely didn't trust me. Really? Yeah. So there's a lot of distrust in there. Her mom loves me, um, you know, because we're, we're Christian. And so her mom's Christian. So she trusts that in a little bit. So, you know, 
you know, in China, China, there's not a lot of Christians in there. If you didn't know, yeah, that. it's a not persecuted weird. minority, basically. So, yeah, yeah, and you can't speak, say any religion in the WeChat groups. It's pretty much known that if you have to use some code words, even though I question the code words are really code words when you should use the same exact code words throughout. I the, know, right? If you're using the same code words, I know it's the pretty, 50 Cent Army. I'll get on that. Yeah, well, they, I think with AI and the, the advances in that, I mean, I'm pretty sure pretty much they know the networks and who's who, but whatever you do what you can. But so her mom loves me. I love her mom too. She's great. Her mom, you know, cooks and everything, takes care of everything. She actually spoils Grace too much where Grace is like, actually her mom's like awesome. And Grace is like, you basically, I have to do everything for her. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't realize, you know, this, here's the thing I didn't realize being American, you know, this term called Sa Jiao. No. So like, you know, me. so like in Asia, like girls, like I'd be like whiny girl, you know, whiny girl thing where you kind of act like a little kid. Like, Oh, why don't you like, mm, yeah. So yeah. Like as an American, I, I, we, I've never experienced it. And I kind of just think it's a whiny girl thing. Right. But, but like Grace loves doing that. Right. Mm. And I forget it when I was married to her. I was like, why are you whining? Like, stop <laughs> whining. You're like a little kid. Right. But I realized though, it's her way of feeling close and uh, safe around me. Mm. So now I've learned that the sad jiao is like, oh, it's a, it's an endearment thing. Like, uh, I trust I you. So, yeah. So being married now, you learn it's a new form of how to communicate and learning about yourself and having somebody else in the same room and being married and married and stuff like that. It's, it's an interesting new adventure instead of like the military, right? Yeah. The military seriously. is easy. I could just jump out of planes and I say, get this thing done. Don't worry about your emotions. Right. But being married, it's all about emotions. <laughs> it's all about emotions. It's a, it's a full roller coaster that never stops. It never stops. It just keeps going around and, and around know, and, and up and down. And like, I guess I just said I just made ignorant again. You know, women are from Mars. You saw an opening Mars. and you jumped in. I just thought I'm going to get married. She's cute, you know, Chinese. She likes me. She yeah. said she married me. She traveled around the world with me, right? Her so, wine is cute. Yeah. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, okay. it's okay. <laughs> it's she wasn't whining. She didn't whine that much when we were married. Okay? It was only after it happened. But, uh, but, yeah, but um, emotionally, she just, it doesn't even make sense. Like, it's all emotional. Like, it's not even logic. You, you want to give me an example, right? Like, she had dreams of me cheating her. Like when she slept, she dreamed that I cheated on her. Mm. And so she wake, would wake up and she'd be all angry at me. <laughs> like, James, in my dream last night, you I cheated. I can't believe you did that. You did that. I'm like, what? And I, 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 I laughed because it was so ridiculous. But it's gotten to a point where if I cheat on her at, in her dream, I have to apologize. <laughs> I still have to apologize. Like, babe, I'm... <laughs> I am so sorry for what I did last night. I'm so sorry in your dreams for cheating on you. Because in her mind, she's like, you must have done something that caused me to have that dream. So it's, that's the crazy thing. That's that so is, Asian, right? It's it? like, I saw it in a dream last night. Yeah, yeah you cheated on me. And so. then I was like, oh gosh, you know? Just, I mean, I, you know what I started doing? I started writing all these crazy things that she does uh, being married. Like, I couldn't remember them. Was, oh, you have a list of it or what? I have a list. No, I have a, I have a, I have a list. Yeah, I have a list because I started doing, this is ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Sorry, Grace. You can kill him later. Uh, I she, did not encourage this. She probably won't listen this deep into it. Perfect. You know? Perfect. It's a lot of English. So. Exactly. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, oh, here's funny things. <laughs> I can't believe you made a list of I did. Uh, crazy stuff my wife does in her sleep. Oh, yeah. yeah here, here's the question. Like okay. she had, she'll, she'll wear something, you know, like an outfit. Mm. And she'll be like, babe, do I look good in this? And I'm like, of course, babe, you look good in this. And she's like, you always say that. I don't know why I talk to you. Like, I, <laughs> Wait. <laughs> you always say I look good, you know? 
I don't know why I ask you. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know why you ask me either because I am <laughs> going to say you always look good. But it's like a no wins question, right? Yeah. yeah, you look great. You always say that. Yes, I know. And as soon as you say, well, it doesn't look so great, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, here's another one. She wore these sweatpants because she loves Zara or something like that. And she says like, hey, do these sweatpants look good? And I said, yeah, of course they do. Uh, well, I'm going to buy the white one as well. Like she's going to buy another color of the same sweatpants. And they said, I asked her, well, what if I uh, said it doesn't look good? And she said, well, your fashion style isn't very good anyway. So I'm going to buy it anyways. <laughs> like, why do you ask me? <laughs> oh, yeah, the last one, the, the situation, right? Um, when she asked me what I wanted to eat for dinner, right? And it's gotten to a point where I'm like, I'm fine with whatever. Hmm. Whatever I eat, you can order whatever, right? But she's like, you have to have an opinion, right? I want you to have an opinion in part of the decision-making process. Hmm. And so I said, well, every time I say I want to do like a certain thing, let's say I want chicken, you say, well, that's not a good choice anyway. So I'm going to pick the beef anyways. So it's gotten to a point where like, well, it's no point in me picking something because you're going to pick something for me anyways. <laughs> but apparently you want me to be part of the decision-making process. So the follow-up episode, we will check back in with James in five years and have a marriage counseling session on this podcast. I don't know if it can last five years, guys. We're going to have to do this probably in the next six months before I go to America. <laughs> oh, <laughs> marriage. man. Marriage, marriage is a different animal. So are you nearing the end of this little Taiwan journey and you guys are planning to head out to the States very soon or is this a little bit in the future? No, yeah, we bought our tickets already. We're already heading out in July. Um you know, whether or not we come back to Taiwan, is, it's hard to say. Um, you know, started a business uh, with a, a company that helps does uh, Asian procurement. Mm. So we help uh, Western companies go into China and help them procure and inspect product in China and then mm. build trust in Chinese manufacturing and then ship it back to America. My partners are like uh, logistics guys. So they help a lot, do a lot of logistics stuff for like shipping and maritime logistics. Mm. Uh, but we also do leadership coaching and stuff like that. And uh, so, because you know, I just saw the leadership in China just saying, hey, you know what? There's, you know, we really feel like leadership and culture change has to happen. So we started this company called SOAR, T-S-O-R, group.com. Just hard to start that business in Taiwan, unfortunately. The time zone, time difference, and also like all the clients really, you know, that's willing to pay for the services are in, is in America. Mm -hmm. You know, in Taiwan, they don't need our services because they speak Chinese. They can, you know, they're right next to China. And also the culture is still the same in, in, in very similar to the Chinese culture. So they're not willing to pay the money for like a high premium price for leadership. Right. So they don't really you know, appreciate that value. They probably don't see. Yeah. They don't see the value in it unless mm -hmm. and maybe if there's a celebrity or an influencer that kind exactly. of brought that up. If it's a they, YouTuber, they're, they're all on possible, top of that. Yeah. They're on top of that. Exactly. <laughs> so, so the time in China, Taiwan probably don't know. Never say never, mm. but probably not as we start our life in America. But here's the thing about Taiwan. Because, so, because my parents were Taiwanese before, Taiwan has this little thing where if your parents or descendant was Taiwanese, then you have a chance to become, to get Taiwan citizenship. Mm. And so if I reapply and get Taiwan, I can get a Taiwan passport. But you don't become a Taiwan citizen until you live in China, Taiwan for over a year, straight 365 days or within two years you know, six months in every year. Right? right. That's a weird thing, right? You can actually have a passport, but you're not technically a citizen not, not necessarily. A citizen. Right. Because they, I don't know why they just have this weird, so weird. Rule, right. Yeah. So let's say in China, they still won't allow me to go back to China. One of the options is, is that to get a Taiwan passport and then come back to Taiwan and live in Taiwan for another year straight 
And then possibly that would be able to have like a Taiwan Taipao Zheng, which mm. is to go back to China, possibly. Right. Um, the other option to get back to China is I'm supposed to get uh, I'm unvaccinated, as we talked about in the beginning here. Right. But I can get a Chinese vaccine. So oh. if I get a Chinese vaccine, then they'll allow me to go back to China. But the only place to get a Chinese vaccine is guess where? In Turkey. China. Well, oh, in Turkey. Turkey. No <laughs> you way. Get, so I could possibly get a Chinese vaccine in Turkey if I reapply to get like a resident visa. So my time in Turkey might not be done because you know you can't be in Taiwan. You can't be you have a Chinese vaccine in Taiwan. Right. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. And not in America. So. Yeah. So it sounds like you're gonna need to get a Turkish uh, passport pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> you. It sounds like you're an honorary citizen there. That's oh, where crazy. you handle your like biggest business. Is in you know. It might be honestly, you know, I was joking around here, but you know, Turkey might be a place where we have to go back to to get the vaccine or something like that to get back to China. I mean, even today, I was in um, Taiwan. I did my Taiwan taxes today. And oh, they, mm. yeah, the Taiwan taxes, right? Because we live in here for a year. You got to mm-hmm. pay the Taiwan taxes. If you've lived over Taiwan 183 days, you got to pay Taiwan. And they're looking at our, our Turkish marriage certificate. And the lady has never seen this before. Mm-hmm. So she assumed my wife was like Turkish. A, oh, wow. It's like, where's your wife's Turkish passport? She's like, well, no, my wife is not Turkish. She's from the mainland. Right. And they're like, what? Oh, oh. Yeah, so she had to go it's talk like, to her boss. Yeah. And it was a whole like... <laughs> It was a whole They press thing. the red button and then... Uh. Yeah, exactly. And, then, and I guess technically in Taiwan, they don't recognize the mainland passport. So yep. they didn't even ask for the mainland passport exactly. at all. Exactly. They're yeah. just like, let, let me press the red button. That's all I'm supposed to do. That's on the SOP. To this, so they didn't even recognize our marriage or something. I don't even know what it is. So I went to get the, the tax filing. was unsuccessful, unfortunately. And I have to wait until I go back to America to file the U.S. taxes and then send that back to Taiwan. So... Wow. Yeah, it's still bureaucracy, but you know what? I feel bad for the Taiwan because they don't really know what they're looking at when they're looking at the U.S. taxes stuff and all the information. They don't know what they're looking at. So yeah. And they're looking at different countries too. Yeah. So it's kind of yes. like they're kind of paper whipping it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, but. Yeah, especially these days. Just so much stuff going on. So much stuff. Yeah. yeah. Taiwan's in a hard, hard position. It's really tough. Yeah. Very Taiwan. difficult position. Yeah. Yep. For sure. So. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So maybe in a couple of years, it'll be back to China. That is your goal or your plan or your dream. Are those words too strong? I or? haven't, um, I haven't given up on my, uh, Chinese learning ability. So, okay. <laughs> so we're going to go for the 10th, the 10th or 11th time. <laughs> I'll be 80 years old before I learn Chinese and probably never <laughs> I have to learn Chinese for my kids or something like that. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, we, uh, her family's in China. I just like, if you're going to affect culture change, I feel like you got to be in the country. Yeah. You know, like America, I don't know if you're going to change the culture necessarily like that in terms of what they have enough people over there, but I feel like Western culture to influence or do just, I don't know. I just feel like there's people more willing to listen because it's not so prevalent in China. Mm. You know, the idea of free speech, the mm-hmm. idea of being able to like be a leader and take responsibility and not blame like the government or something like that, or trying to make change. I feel like you could do that there. Yeah, know? exactly. So, so mm. but maybe I'm just being too naive again. Well. <laughs> I'm a very smart person, <laughs> you know. But he does see an opening. I, hey, I see an opening and I just go for it. And I survived so far. Exactly. I survived so far. <laughs> exactly. And that's all you can do nowadays. You know, there's not many openings in the world right now. So if you see an opening, that is the lesson for today. You <laughs> open, just go for it. Don't think too much about it. You know? <laughs> exactly. You can think about this all the time and never do anything. I feel like take action. Take action. Take you know, action. Take action. Exactly. Take action. I mean, look, you, you got a business, you got a podcast, take an action. Because mm-hmm. You can't think 
I mean, you know, we, I've started a business too. You know, what we started from, from six months ago, you can't, mm-hmm. you don't know where you're going to be now. Exactly. You, you don't want to wait six months to start something. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Again, young Taiwanese, please take action. Take action and take you, action. you're going to learn as you go. Yep. You know, that's the best way to learn is experience. Exactly. You know, so learning, you know, just doing it, being out there and just learning a classroom can get you so far, but actually going out there and doing it and actually practicing and, you know, you learn business, you learn entrepreneurship, you learn how to learn another language, honestly. Exactly. So, and leadership. Leadership. Exactly. Just how to live life. You got to lead to lead. You know, exactly. And learn it in a bottle. So, yeah, man. Wow. Nice, man. Well, it's really wonderful catching up with you after six months. Um, and I definitely look forward to catching up again. Hopefully, we'll find another opening. Um, Maybe we'll join in America. Are you going to think about going to the U.S. anytime? I hope so. I really hope so. I need to get out of Taiwan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, I need a vacation. Honestly, I mean, I love Taiwan, but it's an island. And uh, it's not like they have a lot of modern accoutrements here. Like a modern... <laughs> Um, I, I was joking with you before, right? I told my mom this because she's, you know, she's, she grew up in Taipei. I told my mom, you know, the buildings are looking a little old, you know, from the 80s and 90s. And she kind of joked around her very dry humor. She's like, well, that's okay. When the Chinese take over, they're going to rebuild everything anyways. I'm like, wow, mom. <laughs> that's sorry. a Taiwanese mother. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Dry humor. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Well, yeah. We're definitely excited to get out there. I think I feel like in America, everybody's like, not wearing masks and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I have a friend who was just at the Golden uh, State Warriors game. Mm. And all he's, so he's not wearing, he's like double, triple vaxxed and wears mask, but they're living their lives in America and they're experiencing basketball games and going out. And doing exactly. Stuff, so. Life goes on. Life goes on. Life needs to go on. Yeah. Right. Yeah, unless you're in China. Exactly. Yeah. And then sometimes it just doesn't go on. <laughs> a little pause, just a pause button yeah, that months. sometimes turns into a stop. Oh my gosh. Maybe even you accidentally hit the reverse button. I think we're all glad not to be in China right now at this moment. Yeah. I, feel for I those think guys we're there. a little lucky to have gotten out when we did. Yeah. You know, looking back, right? At the time, we were really sad not to right. be in China. Yeah. Right? We were talking about, we're like, oh, I miss Beijing. Yeah. But not right now. Not right now. And you know, Taiwan, we've been blessed. It's been good. Yeah. It's been good to us. Right. Exactly. Yeah. As refugees. As refugees. <laughs> but we are golden. We are golden refugees. Golden card, Red Cheese. Thank you, Goat Card. <laughs> that uh, is it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, and the Goat Card. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, James. I look forward to talking to you again, catching up with you um, either in the States or I will definitely come visit you in, in mainland. Please. I, I really miss Beijing a lot and miss yeah. my Chinese friends. So absolutely, definitely would love to uh, see you there or whenever you're back in Taiwan, for sure. We got to keep yeah. in touch. 100%, my brother. For sure. Thank you very much for coming by and sharing your stories, brother. Thanks for inviting me. All right. We are out, everyone. Peace.